Hey, this is Chris Higdon from Band Elliott in Louisville, Kentucky, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And in the guest host chair today, I've got artist and recovering musician, Martin Monroe. Martin, welcome to the show. Why, thank you, Keith. Wow, I'm like, I'm, I'm like nervous because there's somebody actually here. This is, everybody, this is huge. This is the first in-person recording of The New Scene. Since episode four, which happened way back in February of February of 2020. Martin is in here right now, right next to me. And I'm looking at him as we record this. And it's pretty crazy. Martin, what do you think of uh, New Scene Studios? How's it? How is it? I told you the command center is uh, it's intimidating, <laughs> but and formidable, but it's also uh, impressive and, and lovely. Well, thank you. Thank you. And you know what? It's exciting to have Martin here. He's a full-time artist. He lives in Sleepy Hollow, and that's why I call him the legend of Sleepy Hollow. And uh, uh, he was also frontman of Revelation Records recording artists, Pitch Black, who you may remember from the 2000s. But Martin has joined me here today for a, another very special episode of The New Scene. We have Norman Brannan of Antimatter Zine and Texas is the Reason. Norman Norman recently relaunched Antimatter Zine, which is just an absolute classic in terms of zines. You know, he's spoken to everybody. He recently relaunched it. He's talking to new and upcoming artists in the scene. He's talking to some of the legacy artists that we know and love. We talk all about that. We talk about Texas is the Reason, one of my favorite bands of all time, New End Original. I mean, Norman has done a lot. And he's doing a lot. Now he's a live touring guitarist for Thursday. I mean, his resume, Martin, is pretty outstanding, wouldn't you say? A renaissance man and a busy man, indeed. Yes. Big time, big time. He's been involved in some of my favorite music of my entire life, and I've been trying to get him on the show since the show started. And uh, very excited to have him here, and very excited to bring you this conversation. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Shirts. We have shirts available at the Death Wish Inc. store. A long sleeve option and short sleeve. Pick one up. It's a great way to support the show. Reviews. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those five-star reviews will really help us out in the podcast rankings. And if you leave a nice review... I'll read it on the air right here in this section of the show. And you can always email me at newscenepod at iodinerecords.com. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Quicksand have added additional tour dates in Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Check their Instagram for a full list of tour dates. Horsewhip have a gig August 17th at VFW Post 39. That's in St. Pete, Florida. Go check them out if you're in the area. Pre-order With a Smile, the new LP from Best X. 
Also, Rebuilder have joined the Iodine Recordings family. They're a melodic punk band out of Boston, and their new LP, Local Support, is available now for pre-order. Sign up for the Iodine email list. You'll find out about everything first. For more information, head to the Iodine Instagram at Iodine Recordings or to their website at iodinerecordings.com. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, New Morality Zine. New Morality Zine is a Midwest-based zine and independent record label specializing in hardcore, post-hardcore, and alternative music. Pre-orders are up for Curse the Knife's There's a Place I Can Rest. That's out September 8th. Vinyl and merch bundles are available for pre-order. The cassette repress of Wish You Were Here by Demo Division is available. That's limited to 50 tapes, so pick it up soon. Stateside have tour dates this fall with Montclair. To support their release, It's What We Do. Those kick off September 15th in San Diego. Also, pick up a cassette of Spaced, Far Out Hardcore. NMZ did a second press on orange cassettes. There's a limited amount available. So pick one up now in the NMZ store before they're gone. And speaking of the NMZ store, get 10% off any order in the store with the code NEWSCENEPOD. For more information, head to the New Morality Zine Instagram at New Morality Zine or head to the website at newmoralityzine.com. Okay, so Martin, let's talk musical recommendations. I'm interested in what you're listening to lately. Lay it on us. I have been all over the map, all over the shop with music lately. At least once a week, I take a very hot bath and listen to A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. Um, I've been listening to uh, a Wu-Tang affiliate named Silva Rings after reading a book about the Once Upon a Time in Shaolin record that came out a couple of years back, and uh, there was only one copy of it. Interesting read. He produced that one. What else? I've been, for the last few years, I have not stopped listening often to, to Wall of Voodoo, to their first couple of records. Just really dark, weird, new wavy stuff. Sonic Youth is always something I'm, you know, listening to often. The Smiths. I've, newer stuff. There's a British band called Shame that I really like a lot. And there's a couple of other bands that kind of pop up on my streaming services that I'm not exactly sure who they are, but the name Warm Doucher comes to mind. And again, just kind of weird, angular, just kind of uncomfortable music. But um, I don't know. A lot of the music I've been listening to kind of correlates to what I've been reading. I read Greg Graffin's autobiography a couple months back, and that kind of sparked a reinv- like a, a reinv- getting back into bad religion which I hadn't listened to in a few decades and it's still good. So yeah, I've been all over the, just all over the place with what I've been listening to. Oh, you're covering it all. Punk rock, hip hop, jazz, everything. Yeah. It's uh, my moods change by the minute. So (laughs) what I'm listening to often follows suit. Well, I've got a recommendation for you, everybody. I was uh, doing some darling fire practice, you know, playing through the songs. And as you know, when the playlist runs out on Spotify, it takes you to, similar or other bands in your hemisphere and i heard this song that i really like the band is called gleamer and the song is called outline 
That's from their album, Here at All. It's good 90s sounding, failure sounding, shoegaze type of stuff. You know, that kind of stuff that I really like. I'll add their song to the new scene, 2023 Spotify playlist. So check it out. You can hear every guest from the show there, as long as they're on Spotify, and all my recommendations and everything else. Okay, so make sure you check back in with me and Martin in segment three. We're going to talk to Martin. We're going to hear about his time out in Oakland, getting into trouble, performing and touring with Pitch Black. He has segued into a life as a full-time artist. We're going to talk about that too. We're going to cover everything. But right now, we are going to speak to Norman Brannan. Enjoy. We are here now with Norman Brandon. Norman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, Norman. It's very exciting to have you here. You know, I think you've done more in music than any other person in history. <laughs> that's <laughs> No, that's absolutely not true. <laughs> oh, come on. We've, we've got Texas is the Reason. We've got New End Original, Resurrection, 108 Shelter, and of course, the exciting relaunch of antimatter. And Norman, you know what? We're going to cover most of that. But first, I need to ask you a question right off the bat. Okay. How are you doing today? <laughs> today, I'm a little bit um, out of sorts. Uh, just, I tend to get a little bit, um, whenever I'm doing something new, launching a new project, releasing something, like I very much wind myself up into knots. And it takes a really long time to unwind that, regardless of any of the external factors. So I'm still very much wound up in knots at the moment. <laughs> what do you do to circumvent that? What is your process? I don't, I honestly don't think there is one. I, um, you know, people talk about things like meditation and all these things. And it's like, I've actually been a meditator since I was 15, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and uh, you know it's that that is a tool that certainly helps you to create distance between just simple feelings and then sort of like the reality of how you are going to react but it's never meant to erase your feelings or thoughts because that's just what the brain does uh like right. my i have a zen teacher and his uh he always says to me when i'm complaining about how my brain goes too fast and he says well can you get your heart to stop beating and i was like of course not and he's like right it's the same thing that's what the brain does the goal is not to stop thinking and i was like okay <laughs> it makes sense i like that no i i feel that i get nervous before i do anything going to meet up with friends going to a event of some sort going to a show playing a show every single interview i do on this podcast but i do a i have like little rituals you know i do a little breathing exercise i listen to something i take some deep deep breaths to get my heart rate down and I know once the thing is done, I'm going to feel good and everything's going to be okay. Right. Well, I mean, with like, it's with playing shows, I've never not been nervous. Like right. it's been, I went on my first tour in 1992 and I still completely, you know, my body just freaks out uh, before a show. It just starts making me feel weird. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, the only, the only solution is just to do it. Exactly. So that's, you know, unfortunately with something like launching or relaunching antimatter, you know, it's not like a show. It's not like a finite thing where it's like, okay, just do it. Um, <laughs> there's a process. It's, it's, it's almost like now I'm, I'm, I've kind of created a new life in some ways, which um, is, is also something that I'm starting to realize and, and process. I didn't really, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, when I made this announcement, I thought that I would get, you know, a modest amount of subscribers and, you know, I could start sort of like slow and just kind of keep it going. Um, but the response has been completely amazing. And, uh, and now I very much feel like, okay, pressure's on. <laughs> <laughs> this is your life now. You, you chose it. Go for it. Now it's time to deliver. Yeah. And, and it's, and, you know, it's funny. It's like even uh, a few weeks ago, we played in Texas and it was like 120 degrees that weekend. Oof. Uh, and one of the shows was an outdoor show. And I'm sort of like waiting in the wings to play and I'm sweating already. I haven't even played a <laughs> note. And I, the um, guitar tech for that band Neck Deep was setting up near me and uh, we had met him before at a different festival and he's, you know, cool guy. And uh, I looked at him and just, you know, with this look of agony on my face, cause I hate the heat, but you know, I just laughed and I was like, this is the life I chose. <laughs> and, and that's cool. It is. So, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Ultimately, I think I've struggled with accepting that for a long time. Yeah, you know, I, I, you could almost say this life chose you because you've been doing this for a very long time, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty, I mean, I always talk about how I never had ambitions um, of any sort. Like I was never like, I really want to be in a big band or like, you know, I want to be a writer. Like these were all sort of things that I, uh, you know, like in the first um, thing that I wrote for Antimatter, I called it survival work. And that's true on a lot of levels. I felt like on one level, 
I was absolutely doing something creative that was expressing things about myself and expressing things that I was still processing, but maybe couldn't articulate. And I was doing that through conversation and through the experiences of other people. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge part of my survival at that time. I believe it, it helped me grow. It helped me get to a place where I could begin articulating those things and could begin being free. Um, but there was also a, a pragmatic aspect to it as well, which was that I was in shelter at the time that I started antimatter. And I knew that I was going to quit shelter soon because, um, I was sort of in this place where I, I guess I was, I was tired of looking over my shoulder, like being in shelter is actually like, and I don't know what it's like now, but being in shelter in 1993 was like, uh, it was like a, a weight on your shoulders. People were just looking at you and thinking that you were like some sort of religious figure or something. And, <laughs> wow. and I was like 19. I was like, no, <laughs> that's, that's don't look at me, please. Um, and so that got to be a lot and I knew I was going to quit and I knew I had to come up with something else. I knew that I wanted to start my own band, but I didn't really have the people yet. And I was still sort of figuring out what that was going to be. And, and I can tell you right now, I mean, the band that we, I was formulating was in the summer of 1993. Chris Daly was in 108. I was in shelter. We were on tour together. And we immediately just started talking about this band we were going to start, which did eventually become Texas is the Reason. Um, but we weren't ready to get there at that point. So I had to come up with something else to not only sort of keep busy, but also because I was, you know, a high school dropout with like zero work experience or at least substantive work experience <laughs> and no one was hiring me. And I was like, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. I'm going to do a fanzine and figure this out. And antimatter actually was my meager living for a couple of years. Oh, so you actually lived off of it. I did. It was all I did, 24 hours a day. Wow. How old were you when the first issue came out? 19. Yeah. I had just turned 19. And where were you in life at that time? So you're touring with Shelter at that time, yes? Yeah. Okay. So had you come out yet? Did people know about that side of you yet? No. Um, I mean, I always say there's one person who sort of always knew, but we never articulated it. Um, and that was Rob Fish from 108. He's my best friend. He's been my best friend for years. Um, and at that point, we had been in resurrection together. I was living with him for some time. Um, he just is a very intuitive person and he knew. And, and so like whenever we were in situations where something or someone would say something homophobic or like whatever, I would always see Rob being very conscious of essentially like chastising that person or, or telling that person to fuck off. Um, and I, in my, in the back of my mind, I was like, he's doing that because he knows, cause he's, he knows, I know it. And, um, and so that was sort of, you know, something, and when I did come out to him, he was like, yeah, of course I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, when I was 19, I was, so I, I, you know, famously dropped out of school. That was a big thing, right? I moved into a Krishna temple for a while. I then moved to New Jersey and started touring with Resurrection in 92, then 
Vic poached me for 108 and I was doing that for a little while, but then shelter poached me from 108. (laughs) (laughs) And so that, that sort of started that thing. So basically like up until that point, my entire sort of independent experience was couch surfing, being a monk and just being poached from band to band. Yeah. You know, reading your story about those years, it's just mind blowing because to think of a kid that young, you know, like you're you're out there on your own, you don't know yourself fully yet, you're figuring things out. It, I, I don't know. I just think about myself at that age and I would have been doomed. You know, I, my life was a mess when I was that young. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no adult skills. Like, do you ever think about that? And you're like, wow, like I lived through all of that. And I- I didn't think about it until um, like, so I'm the godfather of Rob's children. And mm-hmm. and when Rob's children were born and sort of like, you know, I guess you don't think about it, but I learned, I, I don't know if you have children, but <laughs> when you're no. around children, um, you really start reliving your life over again, like through their eyes. And so when they were 14, 15, 16, like the years that I started going to CBs and like hanging out on the Bowery and like, you know, going to very like, dangerous neighborhoods. (laughs) I was like, I remember thinking like, I could never see them in that position. You know, when they turned 16, I was like, I could never see them leaving home right now and, and, and surviving and making good of it without anyone to fall back on. Right. Like, you know, I, my family was not there for me. So when I left, it was me or death. You know, I had to figure it out. How old were you when you initially left your house? As soon as I turned 16. Had you come out to your parents at that point or did you leave before that? Oh, no, no. I mean, I knew for a fact that if I came out to them, it was over. Like I would be in a position where I would probably have been kicked out and I would not have had the agency to have survived the way that I did when I did it on my own. Why did you leave at 16? Um. Well, I mean, there there were a lot of reasons. It's it it really sort of just bubbled up. For one, I just realized I'd done some research and I realized that I could leave school when I was sixteen legally, uh. um, and so that was like a big thing. The other, but I mean, the main reasons were so one was that my house was a completely dysfunctional and violent home my entire life. So getting out of my house was something that I had been thinking about since I was like eight. Um, another reason is that my parents had this weird idea that we should move to Long Island. I grew up in Queens <laughs> and, uh, in Woodside, Queens. And so Woodside's very like, you know, it's a quick trip to Times Square. Like you're in Times Square in like 15 minutes. Yeah. It's very close to the city. And I, I loved living there. Um, and I had friends and I was happy and then they moved to Long Island and I was just complete, not just a fish out of water. I mean, they moved to a place where I was a complete outcast. Like I didn't stand a chance. And so immediately I was just like, I got to get the fuck back to the city. Like that's just going to happen. And then I think the third reason, and I've, I've kind of talked about this a little bit. And I think this is something that I realized because it was a very, uh, it was a subtle reason was that I, I, I think that I, you know, so when I was going to school, I was a really quote unquote good student. And 
one of the reasons why was that uh, from the age of six, I wanted to be a teacher. It was literally the only thing I wanted to do. And it was my dream. As I got older and I started to realize that I was gay, I sort of started losing hope in the dream because, you know, this was the 80s. Uh, there were all these things in the news about laws in California where they were trying to like, you know, ban gay teachers. Um, I pretty much knew that if I was going to be a teacher, I would never be out. And if I never was out, I didn't know if I was going to survive. So from a subtle perspective, I was like, well, what the fuck is the point of going to school? The one thing I want to do, I can't do. So I'm going to figure out something else. And that sort of just sealed the deal, I would say. And then if there was another reason, it was also because um, my best friend uh, had died in a car accident in May of 1990. And that was just completely devastating. And it took me down a path. I think it took me to on the path to where I, uh, I'd say like, that's basically how I really became a Hare Krishna. It, it, it puts you in that place of like, oh my God, you're, we're all going to die. What, what do we do? <laughs> and you start asking the questions. Yeah. When I read about uh, when your best friend died, you know, that took you in the direction of joining the temple. What was it exactly? Were you searching for some kind of meaning? Did you need something more? Like what, what was it exactly that took you in that direction? It was definitely meaning. It was definitely, I had met some people um, in the eighties, just like ex hardcore skinheads from New York who would give out free food that I really felt an affinity for. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like I always talk about this guy, his Krishna name is Madan Mohan, um, but he was Mark back then. And Mark was, um, he was literally just the sweetest person I'd ever met. Like, I just wanted to be around him all the time. I, <laughs> and I was just like, how do I become that? Cause like, here's this guy, he has the word skins tattooed on the back of his head. He's full sleeved, like <laughs> covered in tattoos. I don't know what he was like back in the day. Obviously I knew that, you know, he kind of ran with, a lot of the people that ran with the early Cro-Mags in the early eighties and mid eighties before he joined, but he was so peaceful and calm and thoughtful and considerate. And I just wanted to be that. And so I would say like, he'd certainly had a huge influence on that, not from any sort of direct preaching effort, (laughs) but just from literally just talking to him and hanging out with him and being like, this is the type of person I think I want to be. It's like a attraction rather than promotion. Yeah. And, you know, and then, you know, in terms of the quote unquote direct preaching effort, I definitely had Ray Capo <laughs> talking in my ear the whole time. I had met him in the, in the late 80s very casually. And then, uh, you know, in 1990 and especially around the time of, that my friend died and uh, and Shelter was starting at that time, he was definitely a part of the conversation. You know, he he definitely um, egged me on a little bit to drop out. (laughs) You know, there's a, there's a mystique about it as well, because, okay, I remember it was the year 2000 and I was like, hi. And I was talking to my girlfriend and and I was, I was really into a one away threefold misery at the time. Mm -hmm. And I still remember this conversation. I was like, yeah, 
Krishna, it seems cool. I think I would do it, but you can't drink and <laughs> you have to be celibate and you can't take any drugs. So uh, I guess I can't do it. <laughs> I mean, for me, all those things were great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I, you know, I was already straight edged. I was already vegetarian. You know, in terms of being celibate, I think that it was a good place for a closeted kid to be. Because then it takes it off the table. You don't have to worry about it at that time. Right. And honestly, like to some extent, that was a good thing for me. Like it wouldn't have been a good thing long term, but at least for that period of time to just sort of focus on myself a little bit, I think that was net. That was a net positive. So the first issue of Antimatter, you're 19. I've read the impetus for you putting this together. Maximum Rock and Roll was the big publication at the time, right? Yeah. I guess you could say they're like the pitchfork of uh, that time. They're beyond pitchfork. They were the World Wide Web of that time. <laughs> oh, good comparison. Yeah. So they issued some edict that they were going to be the gatekeepers of what is punk and what is not, because there was a lot of mainstream crossover at the time. And that and that was the impetus for you deciding to start Antimatter, yes? Yes. There were, there were a bunch of things, but that was the thing that made me feel like this is viable because I knew that there was this going to be this gaping hole of artists and labels and punk distros and you know records that needed to be written about, that needed a place to be advertised, and they were going to lose... I mean, literally, it's like it was literally like if somebody just said to a label today, like, you can't use the Internet to promote your record. That's that's how devastating it was to these labels. And so I didn't know, like, I certainly was I don't use the word ambitious a lot. I, You know, I said earlier, I was never really that ambitious. But, you know, I knew that in order for me to make a compelling argument to these labels that, you know, I could fill the void that I had to think big. And, you know, I remember the first issue, I asked Purcell, you know, he had done Schism fanzine in the 80s. And I I said, hey, Purcell, like how many copies of Schism did you make? And he said, uh, the last issue was like 5,000. I was like, fuck, that's a lot. Okay, <laughs> um, fuck, I don't think I can do that. But it put a number in my head where I thought, okay, that's the goal. Like if I can get to 5,000, that's sick. That's a, that's a huge amount of fanzines, but let me start, let me start modest. And so my modest number was 2000, which still felt like, oh my God, when I got those boxes and like, actually uh, a friend of mine was reminding me of, of, we went to go pick them up. Uh, and it was Tim from mouthpieces car. He drove and, uh, and Lenny Zimkis, who is a photographer in antimatter, he came and we loaded up his car with all the boxes and then brought them back to my place. And I just remember staring at all those boxes like, what the fuck have I done? Oh, my <laughs> God. Like I had spent so much money printing, like I'd spent all the money I had printing it. You know, I yeah. had to believe that I was going to sell it. And then I did. Who was in the first issue? Uh, it was quicksand, rage against the machine, resurrection, mouthpiece, lifetime swerve driver, which was like, wow, sort of like left turn. And, uh, I think there was someone else and I'm not, I can't remember. That's massive. And uh, quicksand and rage are still both huge at that time, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's funny. They were still. I mean, quicksand was huge in in hardcore standards, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but even what is huge in hardcore standards, I think that at that point they still had only played like the wetlands. Like they still weren't playing the Roseland or something. Oh, really? Um, no, they were still coming up because hardcore hadn't really was in a. We were just getting to a place where we were starting to feel like it was scaling up, and everybody was like, "Oh, okay." And so, like Rage, at that point their record had been out for about a year, but I think it maybe was at exactly the time that the freedom video came out. And that's when it really started popping for them. So when I did that interview, they were still on tour with Cypress Hill, like opening. Ah, so you got them just at the right time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, I don't even remember how I made that happen. I'd met Zach, you know, when he was an inside out, um, and so we already had this kind of ambient relationship and he was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, but you know, later on it, it became, I ended up writing two different cover stories for alternative press for rage and Zach for like years, um, told his publicist, like, I'm not doing it unless Norman's writing it. Oh, wow. So it was like, we, we wound up having like this really cool relationship. I love that. Yeah. How do you do uh, the interviews back in the day? Like, are you with Zach in person? Do you catch everyone on tour? Are you on the phone? Both? How does it work? I only wanted to do it on person. And I only wanted to do it um, like I would never interview more than one person unless I felt some compelling reason to do so. Right. You know, I feel a lot of parallels because when I started this podcast, and this is actually a dumb idea now that I think about it, but I was like, I'm only going to do it in person. Like I'll drive to whoever's house and set everything up and do it. But then the pandemic hit. And you know what? Now that I think about it, that's not a very feasible idea. Right. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I can't afford that. I I feel like back then I was touring a lot and I was just sort of like all over the place anyway. So, you know, a lot of things like, so for example, on the third issue, I think I did it around like Outspoken's last show and I was like, oh, well, I'm going out to California so I can interview this band and that band. And you know what I mean? So I was, you know, tagging things on for what I'm doing now. It's not practical, Um, especially because just everybody is all over the place all the time. I never would have access to anyone. But I also feel like I'm in a different place as an interviewer to where I'm pretty confident in my in in my ability to open up a conversation under almost any circumstance. That's good. It's a real skill, you know? There's there's so many layers to it. And I got better over time. Like even just if you read the antimatter sequentially, I really do believe that every issue got better. And and so that's also my hope for the new iteration of antimatter. I really I feel like it can continue to get better. And I feel like, you know, even though I'm doing the interviews right now, not sequential in terms of how I'm going to publish them, Mm -hmm. but I do feel like every interview I've done has gotten a little bit better. Um, And the first one that I did was great. Like I, I finished it and was like, this is going to work. Can we say who it is or do we need to hold on to that for now? Uh, well, okay. So the, uh, the first interview I actually did back was with Crystal from Initiate. And, uh, I chose, you know, I really wanted to do newer bands because I didn't want people to think that this was just another nostalgia trip. Um, smart move. It was, it's important to me that I'm 
doing the thing that I think antimatter did in the nineties, which, you know, I can, it, it sounds weird to say this in retrospect, because I think people who weren't there maybe don't understand this fully, but in 1993, there was already sort of a new wave of hardcore kids who, if they had seen maybe one show in 1989, you, you know, they were lucky, right? So a lot of the people who were hanging out in the eighties just dropped out. Like they were just, you know, okay, cool. The nineties came and they were like, oh, you know, I'm doing something else. Yeah. And so in the nineties and especially as hardcore started evolving as a sound, um, new kids were attracted. It became a different type of scene. And those kids weren't always so plugged into what happened back then. And I guess I felt like antimatter could be a bridge. I wanted to be the bridge. I wanted to be sort of the connective tissue that allowed people to understand why you could have a fanzine where cause for alarm, snap case, and shudder to think were in the same issue. And in that makes sense and should make sense. Yes. And I think that that thread of being able to say, look, Cause for Alarm was a band from 1982. They were incredibly influential to all these bands in the late 80s. Um, for me, they were one of my favorite bands when I first got into the scene. I And, and they were already broken up by the time I uh, started coming around. But, you know, I I knew their importance. And I knew how I could draw a direct line from Cause for Alarm to Snapcase. You know, I can draw a direct line from Cause for Alarm to Shudder to Think. <laughs> it's 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 all still hardcore to me. And I think that that's one of the things about antimatter that was important to me was I wanted to keep hardcore open and inclusive of the styles and generations that were emerging from this community. Because for me, that's what this is. This is a community of like-minded people. And I feel like, you know, you know it when you see it. When you're a hardcore kid, you know it when you see it. Yes. No, I, I love that. I, I feel a lot of kinship with antimatter, with what you're doing and with what and with what I'm doing. You know, like I could have Norman Brannon or I could have someone from Incendiary, or I could have someone from Scowl. Or I could have '80s pop star Tiffany. Right. You know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have Tiffany on, but <laughs> it's all connected. You see, right. somehow. Uh, but no, like, and and the personal touch in your interviews is important too. I think that's important because, especially, all right, especially today with podcasts, I think we lose the stories a lot mm -hmm. because some a lot of time podcasts are just talk, like we talk about whatever or we talk about ourselves or, but I think the story is lost a lot of the time. And I'm interested, not just the music, but the people and the story. And you are too. Well, yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I'd say for the last, I don't even know how many years, I feel like I've had nothing but people saying, hey, you should make an antimatter podcast. And, and I was always like, maybe, but <laughs> in the back of my head, I, I was like, no, it's not the medium. <laughs> it's just not. And I'll tell you why. I think that obviously I've been on a million podcasts. I love talking to people and sort of like hanging out and sharing stories. But I think that I'm a certain type of person. I like you could record me or not record me or whatever, and I'm basically going to be the same. But what I found over the years in doing different interviews with people is that uh, there are some people who 
change under different circumstances. And so the there are some people who the idea of being recorded in a way where people are going to hear me say this, people are going to hear my voice, that's going to intimidate them or keep them from saying something that they may have had the freedom to say if they knew that their voice wasn't being recorded for broadcast. Ah, yes. And I think that, you know, doing it the way that I do it also, it gives people a little bit of freedom to feel safe in, you know, where it's like they know, and obviously I have the reputation, people know that they can say whatever they want to say with me. And that if at any point they're like, oh, fuck, I regret that. Please don't publish that. I'm not going to. Right. And it's not a big deal. I can edit a transcript and editing a transcript is easy. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 But but editing audio is less easy. And if I'm honest, most podcasts that I've been on literally just press record and publish it as is. You know what? I, I have to uh, take a sidebar here. Uh, sorry to any podcasts who do this, but I'm, I'm shocked at how little editing there is. Like sometimes you'll listen to a podcast and the first five minutes will be them figuring out the audio. And I'm like, <laughs> why did they leave this in? <laughs> I mean, I get it. I mean, we're not, it's not like, um, I mean, audio editing is a skill, right? And not um, really. You just clip it out. That's it, all I do. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's, I do think that I would love and do love podcasts that I think, um, I love storytelling podcasts. I love sort of like, um, you know, the, the Q&A podcasts can be good, but then they can also just sort of ramble on. And I like, yeah. I like the idea that when I'm doing an interview, I could sit down with someone for two hours and you don't have to sit through the boring stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that was going to be a question of mine. Will there be an anti-matter podcast? Because that's a big medium these days. But you know what? What you're saying is spot on because, okay, on the flip side of what you're saying, I would never want to do a written publication like you're doing because I don't want to sit there and type. I don't want to have to like edit. I, I'm, a, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to mess up a transcript, right? That's not my medium. And right. then, it, you know, if someone wanted me to do audio, I wouldn't want to do like, you can't see me right now. I can't see you, but we can hear each other. That's enough. I'm too self-conscious to do audio or video. I wouldn't want to do it. So like, yes, you you just do the medium that fits you and that's it. And you know what? I think there's a, uh, I think we need more good written publications because myself, when I do research for a guest like yourself, I like to read articles. I don't want to hear another podcast or watch another long form video because I, I almost feel like I'm spoiling it for myself. Right. Like I, I, I want to read all the information and take it in and then just make my own talking points. Yeah. And I mean, I also think that, you know, you should, whatever you do, you should feel like you are doing something that is filling a void of some sort. And right. I, when I decided to relaunch Antimatter, you know, this wasn't like a done deal in my head. I really went through this. I went through it <laughs> to get to the point where I could be like, okay, I'm doing this. Let's do it. But one of the things that really brought me there was just, you know, I I was like, there are a lot of really cool publications online and fanzines and things that, you know, I certainly read and consume. Um, but I just felt like I do something that's maybe a little bit different. And that mm -hmm. is unique enough that it has a specific type of value for what's happening right now in this 
you know, sort of like new wave of hardcore revivalism, I'd say. And it's, it's at the end of the day, that was the, that was the driving force. I just felt like what I do is not something that I'm reading right now. And maybe that means that there's a place for me. Absolutely. Now is the time. And I like that you want to have a focus on newer bands too, because there's a lot of great diversity in hardcore and punk right now. And having your touch on that would be valuable. I think, you know, the main thing for me, again, like it's, it's about being a part of the entire hardcore story. And so the first four interviews for this coming month. Um, so the, the first one I, I sort of, uh, disclose in, in the introductory, um, the second part of the introduction is I'm, I do a 29 year reunion interview with Mike judge mm. and, you know, Mike's interview in antimatter was a very, um, it was sort of like a key moment for the zine because at the time Mike was completely missing, literally missing. Like people don't understand. No one knew where he was. <laughs> there were all these rumors. Everyone was just like, what the fuck happened to Mike judge? It was such a weird thing. I would ask everyone I knew, you know, like I remember talking to Purcell. I was like, do you talk to Mike? And he's like, no, he's like, I have no idea what he's doing. No one does. Wow. And finally, I, I was, uh, was talking to Mark Ryan from Supertouch. And Mark basically grew up with Mike in New Jersey. So I knew that their relationship was different. And I asked Mark, do you know where Mike Judge is? And he said, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, can you bring him out? Would he do an interview with me? And, you know, and Mark is like, I could try. And, you know, it actually took a little bit of cajoling um, for Mike to come out. And Mike literally was like, I'll only do it if Mark can come too. And I was like, that's fine. Yeah. So Mike came out to the city and we met at a, this vegan ice cream shop that I used to do a lot of interviews in for some reason. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was a really sort of like big moment because he was able to sort of answer all of these questions that people had for, you know, the last four years of where the fuck is Mike judge. Um, but one of the things about that interview that I found especially humorous was that uh, there's a part in it. And, and when I did the interview with Mike, I, I call, I said to him that you sounded like a retired coal miner. Uh, and he was just like, oh man, you know, I'm 27 years old. <laughs> and, and my response was like, wow, that's, it's a pretty long time to be doing this sort of thing. You know, like we're both clueless basically <laughs> because there's no model for aging and hardcore at this point. Right. Right. At this point, 27 is a long time to be doing this. We're like, oh my God, woof, fuck. Um, and so it was really sort of important to me that for the first interview back, one, I wanted to kind of create a, a, a piece of continuity with the original antimatter. And two was that that line of questioning was so interesting to me, or that line of answer was so interesting to me, because now we're talking about the amount of time between that interview and today is longer than the amount of time that he had been alive at that point. Wow. And, <laughs> and now he's doing Judge again. I'm doing Antimatter again. We're both much older. And 
basically, you know, I wanted to start with what the fuck were we thinking back then? <laughs> and, and that's sort of how the interview unravels. So making these connections is important to me. And so this being completely not on purpose, but I realized that the first four interviews that I have, each artist sort of represents a period of time from the hardcore story. So Mike represents the 80s and 90s. And then I have someone that clearly represents the double O's, someone that clearly represents the tens to me. And then Crystal, who I feel like is a quint, you know, initiate being a very quintessential 20s band right now. So it's spanning each age. I love that. That's great. Yeah. I didn't mean to do that, but it just happened. And now I feel really good about that. <laughs> I This might sound hokey, but I think there's a synchronicity to things. You know, like uh, there's, there's like these weird coincidences when I post stuff and when I put stuff up that I don't even mean to happen, but they're so good. I would tell people that I meant it, you know, if, if they ever asked. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel, um, I feel like one thing I want to do also is, is really challenge the readers a little bit. Um, I, I think that with this second introductory post, you know, one of the things I talk about is, is gatekeeping and hardcore and, um, and I really have this very open vision of hardcore. There are people that a lot of, uh, hardcore folks would probably be like, what the fuck is he doing here? You know what I mean? And I never want to be a part of that. Right. If what you're doing is real and you come from where I come from, then I see you as part of the community. Yes. That's my take personally. I like that. Yeah. I I bring up the gatekeeping thing all the time because when I came up in the late 90s, early 2000s in Philadelphia, there well, in hardcore in general, there's a lot of gatekeeping, but where I came up, you know, it was like traditional hardcore versus crossover stuff. And what we listened to was fake hardcore. What they listened to was real hardcore. It was city versus suburbs. There was a lot of uh, litmus tests. It's a tale as old as time. I mean, when I first got into the scene, so I started going to shows more regularly in 87. Like the first show I went to was in December of 86. So I don't claim 86 because I just missed it. But, yeah. <laughs> but 80, you know, 87, 88, 89 in New York, this was the era of crossover stuff happening. You know, oh my God, wait, do we like DRI now? Do we like Ludacrist? Do we like Best Wishes? You know, <laughs> there were all these questions or even Agnostic Front, you know, people were like, oh my God, do we like Agnostic Front? They went sort of went crossover. Um, I think that again, being able to be in tune with intention is important. And I think that there are bands that changed, let's say, quote unquote changed, and you know that they changed from some level of wanting to succeed. They were sort of treated accordingly. <laughs> mm. and, yeah. and in my opinion, that's fine. But there, <laughs> but there were other bands that just naturally evolved and stayed true to who they were from a community perspective, from an ethical perspective, you know, from a personal perspective. You know, you take a band like Quicksand, you take a band like Jawbox, you know, these were bands that were just like evolving over time. Uh, doing something that excited them. And to me, that was exciting too. I wanted people to be able to explore because hardcore is on some level also about being free. Absolutely. I like that. I like that uh, summation. Like, I feel like we can pick up 
when someone is changing uh, for greater pursuits or when it's just a natural evolution, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, I, I think that there are definitely people who like to, uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of what the word is, but basically think the worst, right? Like <laughs> yeah. there are definitely people who just immediately want to believe, oh, the only reason they're doing this is because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And they've created this narrative in their head. And maybe right. I'm a little spoiled because a lot of these people are people that I know or have been around or understand in some way. Um, and so I can judge their intentions from maybe a clear vantage point. But that said, I still personally try to not go to the negative part first. I, I, I'm just sort of like, in a, I'm a very, hear, okay, I'll hear you out type of person. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that's the way to go. Cause I, I jump right to the worst case scenario a lot. That's just how I'm wired, but I need to not do that because that's not always the case. No. And also like, there is a question of like, is what you're doing good? Right. Right. <laughs> right. And What's the checklist? Like, does this need to be said? Does this need to be said by me? Does this need to be said right now? Like right, all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, when you're good, you're good. You sort of like, you know, I think one of the reasons why quicksand was able to sort of transcend the the hardcore police. And, and I will say like, you know, in, in this last essay I wrote, uh, or the introductory essay I wrote, I, I am very clear that they didn't completely transcend it. People protested their shows still. <laughs> I was surprised to read that. <laughs> right. I thought they, I thought they skated by. No, they definitely did not skate by. It took a minute. Um, but the point being is that they were just, they kind of were undeniable. People were just like, okay, yeah. I mean, they're fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they were. And they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So Texas is the reason. You were in this band, right? You remember this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Barely. Okay. The name of the band. I've heard many different stories and tales and rumors. I've heard Misfits lyrics. I've heard Garrett saw it scrawled on a fence post somewhere on tour. Where does the name actually come from? Oh, I mean, it's it's a Misfit lyric, but it was also scrawled on a fence after the fact at the grassy knoll because yes, the lyric is Texas is the reason that the president's dead. Right. And it's about JFK. So, um, yeah, it, it was the lyric and it was, uh, it was not my first pick for band name, but I came around to it. <laughs> it is a good one. I could see how it could be weird at first, but it's, it's, it's a good one. It was a left turn. It definitely, I think the reason I came around to it was I was like, you know, nobody is going to, hear the name of this band and be like, I know what that sounds like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, uh, that, that's, that's a huge layup, I think, at least at that time. A hundred percent. So you and Scott and Chris Daly are together. How did Garrett get in the mix? I think he was up in Buffalo. I remember reading stories about you and him maybe exchanging letters. How did we decide to involve Garrett in this? I... We had been talking about different singers for a minute, but um, I think the thing that really sealed it was that uh, Garrett was had gotten kicked out of Copper, uh, the band he was playing in in Buffalo, and he got um, he when that happened, I was living at Equal Vision, which was Copper's label, and Steve was on the phone with Garrett. And Steve always felt that Garrett was a very important part of Copper, even though he was just the bass player. Steve's sort of position about it was that Garrett was charismatic and that he was somebody that people liked to look at and that without him, Copper 
would be losing a, a major sort of part of their visual sort of aesthetic and appeal. So Steve was trying to keep it together. He's on the phone, like really trying to figure this out and like, you know, trying to figure out how Garrett isn't going to get kicked out of copper. And I literally at one point just walked over to Steve and just whispered, Hey, can I talk to Garrett when you're done? (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, yeah. And I talked to Garrett and was literally just like, Hey, do you ever think about singing for a band? (laughs) Because he sang backups in copper. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, this kid can sing. So yeah, I, I, that was m- me poaching. So you were ambitious. See that? No, I just wanted to be in a band. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, getting a singer who can sing is really difficult. How was the band at that time? It seemed like things happened fast and, you know, like it was just like a rolling freight train. That's my view from, from the future anyway. But we know the band got a major label offer, but... How was the reception to the band at the time? How were the audiences? Like, how was it? Because, you know, you guys came from a different background. How was it when you were playing and everything? I want to say it's funny because, you know, we gatekeeping has been on the mind all week. And, you know, we talked about it just now. But, like, I actually feel like, I mean, there were certainly people who didn't like us, right? There were certainly people who were just like, what the fuck is this shit? You know, this isn't hardcore. And great. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't, I was like, I, I'm, you know, there was no point in time where we were trying to fool anybody into thinking we sounded like Madball. Like that was not <laughs> what what we were doing. Right. Um, but from our perspective, we were like, look, we're hardcore kids. We're going to play hardcore shows. That's who we are. Yeah. And, and we, you know, our first show was at the Equal Vision Loft. Um, you know, it was all hardcore kids. It was like the sick of it all guys. Uh, it was, you know, Ray Capo came. It was, you know, it was, it was a hardcore show for all intents and purposes. Um, and so after that, you know, we just kept playing hardcore shows. We played with Snapcase. We played with Madball. We played with Mouthpiece. We played with Ignite. We played with, you know, there were, there was never any sort of issue at that time with these like mixed bills because I think everybody, again, it was really about like, are you a part of the scene? And, you know, we were, undoubtedly a part of this scene. Everybody knew who we were from our other bands. So, you know, the response from the hardcore scene actually was really good, really fast, which was awesome. And, you know, and in terms of like response from the industry and the reason why that band became such a wrecking ball and chaotic uh, was because we literally had major label offers after our first show. So oh, really? Yeah. And we sucked at that show. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, there were people that were at the show who were hardcore kids who worked at major labels now. Um, and because, you know, post Nirvana, major labels were like, okay, well, what else is going on? Who are, who are punk kids that sort of have their ear on the ground? And there were at least three people at our first show who were hardcore kids that were doing A&R at major labels. So, and that's not why they were invited. They were literally just friends. Yeah. So that starts a snowball effect because the way major label bidding wars work is that the second more than one label is interested in a band, every label is interested in the band. Right. And in 1995, 
This isn't the same way now. At this point, there's probably like five major labels. Back then, there was like 28. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so there was a point where, you know, our lawyer was like, you have 28 offers. (laughs) No. Yeah. It was like, it was, it was that crazy. Oh my God. Uh, You know, the highest offer that we received was worth $3.5 million. So, you know, that's crazy. And we didn't know how to deal with that at all. It fucked us up from the beginning. I think it's part of what fucked up our relationships with each other. I think we got a lot of shit twisted and we were super lucky to make as much music as we did in that short period of time before it all blew up. Things must have been bad if we couldn't hold it together to make that next record and take this offer, right? Because, all right, I was in my first band when I was 24 and I was a mess back then. Back then, I thought the answer to my problems would have been like a major label contract or that type of attention, which is not true. That would have made things worse because it looks like that's what happened with you guys. So I guess it was that bad that we just couldn't be like, all right, maybe we don't want to talk to each other, but maybe we can record this record. I guess, uh, I guess that was the situation. Well, okay. So, I mean, I should say like, we tried first of all, to like, to stay independent. And when we signed with Revelation, we signed for two albums and the EP Ah. And so we did that very much on purpose because we thought, well, you know, if we sign this deal, then everyone else will go away because we're signed, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that did not happen. It made things crazier. The labels were just, they didn't give a shit. They were like, we'll buy your fucking contract. Who cares about your contract? Like, yeah. And so it just got more and more intense. Uh, You know, there were a period, there was a period of time where it was fun. Uh, you know, like being flown around and getting picked up at the airport in the limo and like being taken out to dinner and, you know, a million times. I always joke and it's not a joke, but there were, I remember there was one week where we literally were like, let's get breakfast, lunch, and dinner from a different major label every day this week. (laughs) And we did it. And (laughs) And we were like, so stuffed. It was too much food, but, but the point was that like we were it, it became sort of a, a game on some level um because we weren't ambitious to sign to a major label it wasn't until towards the end when we made a conscious decision that okay maybe we should take this seriously what if they're right like what if like we think that we're just like a a fucking you know hardcore band or quote unquote post hardcore band um, which is sort of what people called us at the time, that the, the word emo hadn't really been a thing. But we thought that that's what we were. And we didn't think that that kind of music was what was on the radio. And so we weren't, you know, part of the reason of us not signing was that we just didn't think that we were that kind of band. We didn't think there was going to be success. And we just figured we'd put out a major label record, fail and break up. Um, but towards the end, there was this feeling of like, Oh, well, what if they're right? I mean, literally, there's like 28 labels that want to sign us that all seem to think that we're a fucking golden ticket. Are we? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and so we would talk to friends of ours on major labels of varying levels of success. Um, you know, we were trying to get a hold on, on like, you know, I remember uh, 
hooking up with Zach at one point when we played at the Troubadour in LA and he came to the show and afterwards I was talking to him about it and he was like, look, he's like, we signed with Michael Goldstone at Epic. Michael at that point was at DreamWorks and he wanted to sign us. And so Zach basically was just like, I I will just say I'll co-sign on Michael completely. Like he will give you complete independence and freedom. And so I was like, okay, fuck, I got to think about that. You know, like there's... There was a lot of things that were making me feel like maybe this was viable. And I think we all started feeling that way. But ultimately, I think our relationships just were not great. And they weren't great for a ton of reasons. And I think that when we finally did break up, it was probably because you know I had the realization that signing a record deal was going to be like marrying this band and I was like, I don't think that we're marriage material. Yeah. You know, I, I've thought about this because I'm like, on one hand, major label contract, this is the answer I think I need in my life. I would have done it. But on the other hand, I think about my actual history. I was 24, 25 in my first band. The band changed and I didn't feel a kinship with it anymore. And I walked away. Right. I left. So it's like, I, you, don't, you don't know what you're going to do until you're in the situation. Well, there's a, the, the other sort of pressing issue for me was that during that time, I was also struggling insanely with not being able to come out. And I was literally suicidal. So there was a part of me that thought if I sign this contract, I'm never going to be able to come out. I see. And if I can't do that, I we'll do something stupid. So there's much more at stake than just bands and money. A hundred percent. And you know, I I don't even think the band realized that. I mean, I was that last year I was, I mean, I must've been horrible to be around. I, I was so depressed. I literally would just sit in my bunk, pull the curtain and just not come out until I had to. I just wasn't in a headspace at all for anything. And yeah, there was part of me where I was like, I don't know, maybe signing to a major label will shake things up and make me happy. Maybe that was part of it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't feel like I could come out in 1996 without potentially fucking up the band. Or at least that was the fear. That makes sense. And uh, I've read stories about the end of the band. You're in tour, you're on tour in Europe. And you all just, you were playing a show and you decided if this show is great, this is going to be the last show. That's, that's about correct. Me and Daly. Okay. Yeah. The other guys didn't know that. (laughs) That was, that was going to be my question. I was like, wait, did everyone know about this plan? Like, no. So, so how do you break it to the other guys? When, how, how was that reaction? It was, it was a mess. There was no, there was no clean way of doing that. I, I think that I was at the end of my rope. Um, I don't know what Daly was feeling at that time, but you know, we, I confided to him where I was at on the bus. He basically was like, I fucking feel you completely. Yeah. And we sort of said that about that show, the show went off. It was amazing. And that was it. We just, we got on the plane, uh, but it was on the plane. It was just me, Daly and Scott. So we told Scott on the plane and he was not stoked, but eventually sort of you know, was like, I get it. And so that was okay. And then, but then the hard part was that I had to tell Garrett and he was hanging out in Europe after the tour, he stayed. 
Um, so I had to talk to him in, I think he was in France or something and I called him and yeah, it wasn't pretty. I can imagine. But I mean, you know, I, I get it. I get that like bands breaking up is a difficult thing, but I would have wanted him to break up the band if he was as miserable as I was. And if I was fucking as happy as a fucking clam and he was on the verge of killing himself, I would demand that he break up the band. It's uh, There's a lot at play. And I, I think it's one of those stories. It's like, it's just too good to continue. I, I put at the drive-in in the same category. Like it was just such a magnificent moment in time and, and such a great band. It just like, it just couldn't continue. It was like, it was too big. I really just good. try to like, you know, I try to see things as they are. It's, it's really easy. And I think one of the things that breaks bands up is this tendency to mythologize. I think that, you know, our first bio ever was written by Mike Gitter. And, you know, Mike actually at the time was working at Atlantic Records as an A&R guy, but obviously we know Mike as, uh, you know, the editor of XXX fanzine and, you know, the singer of Apology and all the hardcore things that Mike's done. Old school, good guy. He wrote our first bio because we needed a writer and I didn't want to do it because that's weird. And uh, and so Mike wrote it. And the, the angle for our first bio was basically that we're going to break up at any second. He sort of <laughs> he he sort of just intuited from hanging out with us that this wasn't going to last. Wow. <laughs> and. Uh, and maybe to some extent, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, but I do think people do tend to create these mythologies around bands that are unhealthy and create toxic situations for bands that maybe don't need to, uh, to be there. Yeah. Look at poor Nirvana. I'm sure there was some of that going on. I, you know, that's one of those things where it's like, who knows? They, you know, it's... We all come to these situations with different histories, different psychologies, you know, different ways of being. So how we process the things that happen to us and the things that we do vary from person to person. So, you know, I would like to think that I, you know, am a thoughtful person, but when I was in the middle of the shit, um, I acted out. Yeah. And it, you, I mean, it's impossible you don't know until you know, right? Then you don't know how to act. You don't even know what you're going through necessarily. So you mentioned you felt suicidal. That was a danger because you felt like you couldn't come out. When did you actually come out? I mean, pretty much almost as soon as the band broke up. Um, how old were you at the time when that happened? 23. So yeah, 23, 24. I followed you on social media for a long time. I like your posts and what you have to say, because you're, you know, you're just open. And even if it's not exactly what I'm going through, I just felt a kinship and felt connected and that, you know, you're being open and honest and it's helped me through some things. And I know you've posted about coming out and your parents were not, they did not accept this, right? Right. Well, I didn't come out to them until I was 30. Ah. And so that was, and again, that goes back to what I was saying before. I knew what the end result was going to be. And I knew that as a child, and I knew that as an adult. Well, first, when, when you initially came out, how old did you say you were? 22? 23, I think. And I should say that it was a weird thing, because when people talk about coming out, there's this idea of it being 
uh, you know, this, let me, I've got to sit you down. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think I actually quote unquote came out to anyone. I just started living my life and not censoring myself and not censoring anything. Um, Because when you're in the closet, you are living another person's life. You are monitoring how you speak. You're monitoring how you move. You're monitoring what you wear. You're monitoring what you tell people you like, right? There's so many levels of what you're monitoring. It's impossible to keep it all (laughs) straight. What a burden. It's it's an absolute burden. And so for me, coming out was basically like, fuck monitoring. Yes. I'm going to be me. And how did, how did it feel? I mean, was it freeing? Was it good? Did you, did you feel better? Immediately. You know, when I, like, I have a friend, uh, who is still in the closet and, um, and really, you know, he's suffering in there and it's like, it's really, everyone has to come to their own, get to their own place where they can finally come out. But it's like, I wish there was some way that I could just, you know, psychically transfer the feeling of freedom you get when you can just fucking be yourself. Yes. Because it's just, uh, you know, I've, I felt it and I've never regretted it. And there was never a period of my life where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my family. I, you know, the answer to that was, I don't care. I'd rather lose my family than be fucking not free, you know, or I'm going to lose friends or I'm going to lose career opportunities or I'm going to, whatever it is, doesn't fucking matter. None of that. It all pales in comparison to being free. You have to be you. You, you have to be. And I think a lot of people take that for granted because yeah. a lot of people are able to be themselves to a certain extent <laughs> that I was never afforded that luxury. And so in some ways, when you come out, it's, it's not just coming out as queer or you know whatever. You're kind of rebuilding your entire life and personality and individuality and self from scratch because- Everything that you were before you came out, every part of you had a lie attached to it. So it literally feels like burn it down and start start over. I love that. That that's got to be very freeing. It's great. And then I will say, like when my when my family did reject me, one of the first things I did was change my name legally, and that was also fucking incredible and profound. And I wish there was some way I could psychically transfer to you the the way it feels to not be attached to a name that you've been attached to your entire life that brings nothing but misery. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I've read that from you. I love that you did that because rather than living in this burden, and I'm sure it's, it's sad and it hurts and all of that, but you, you've taken the power back and established your own identity. And I love that. And I think that's a great message for anyone who might be going through something similar. Yeah. And, and to, to be clear, it's still a process. And yes, I still feel like we're all in the middle of our stories. I'm very loath to, to sit here and, and tell you that I'm, you know, sitting pretty on the other side, but you know, it's an important part of the process to get to that place where, you know, at least the trappings and the baggage and the excuses that you had for not doing what you wanted to do or being who you wanted to be, those excuses are gone now. 
So now it's just like you have to take full accountability for your life. Exactly. Exactly. So what your parents, they did not accept you coming out. Was that it? You just never talked to them again? Well, they never talked to me. <laughs> you did you actually try to reach out to them? Uh no, I mean we had we had a final conversation and uh you know in that final conversation I came out I confronted them with well specifically with my mother, you know I confronted her uh with basically a a sort of rundown of my childhood uh mm-hmm. more or less asking for her to at least acknowledge that this happened. Mm-hmm. Um and then I left it up to her. I just said, I'm willing to completely put this all under the rug and have an adult relationship with you based on unconditional love. I'm willing to try if you're willing to try. And if you're not, don't call me back because I'm not interested in having a fake relationship with anyone. Mm. And she made that decision, never called me back. And it was you know, I gave it maybe six months and then I changed my phone number, changed my name, went on with my life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> your par- Are your parents, are they deceased? I, yeah. Do I remember that correctly? Yep. Yeah. Both of them? Both gone. Do you talk to your brother at all? No one. No one? No one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, and you know what? Like, a lot of people, I say that to people and, you know, I, I get a lot of, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's really not like that at all. Um, yeah. You know, I think that, you know, sort of bringing this back around to like why even at my age and 30 years later, and I'm, I'm still doing antimatter of all things, you know, like I have to be real about my relationship with hardcore. And that is this hardcore gave me a life. It gave me a family. It gave me people who have continually looked out for me unconditionally my entire fucking life. Like, it's shocking how whenever I've been in a position of struggle or a position where I truly needed help, where I needed somebody to to come through for me, hardcore kids were the ones who did it all the time, all the time. They never fucking let me down. People from other areas of my life, you know, they tried to quote unquote help. (laughs) The hardcore (laughs) kids went above and beyond. And that is why I'm here. That is why I still defend this community. That's why I still support the bands that allow this community to have like sort of a unifying principle. That's why I want this community to not just survive, but thrive because the people in this community are fucking incredible people that, you know, I just can't even wrap my head around it. You know, like stumbling into hardcore when I was fucking 13 years old was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I feel that because uh, this scene is where I've, I've met all of my best friends. It's where I learned all of my ideals and learned, you know, things that are important to me. It's where all of my artistic pursuits lie for the most part. So yeah, it's, it's family. That's what it was for me. And that's how I used it. Honestly, when I was a kid, you know, it was who, who are going to be the people that really are there for me? Because I currently live, you know, with a bunch of blood relatives who are not there for me and who, who would love nothing better than for me to be someone else. And when I got into the hardcore scene, it was very much come as you are. 
I like that. Okay, I have a question for you. New End Original. Yeah. I was very excited when this band came out because I got into things around 98, 99. Texas is the Reason was broke up. Texas is the Reason became my favorite band of all time around, mm, let's say, the year 2000, right? Wow, cool. And they were a... It was just a legend at that point. And there was all these wild stories of uh, heroic breakups and uh, selling drugs for guitar or selling guitars for drugs. I remember reading that in some article. I was like, what? That sounds so cool. But, you know, all these legends. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So all these legends, right? So the band was a myth at that point. I remember buying a a VHS of Texas is the reason from Rick to Life on eBay (laughs) because that was the only way I could see the band. So I heard New End Original was coming out, and I was like, wow, you know, Jonah from Far, who I love, and two people from Texas is the reason. Right. This is my dream come true. So I have to ask, what happened? Um, I think that was uh, a situation where it was basically like we, Jonah and I had a concept for a band. Yes. And we were confronted with the realities of life, uh, meaning that we didn't have the time to make the band that we fully wanted to make. Mm-hmm. So we were like, okay, let's, let's sort of like clear the storehouse a little bit. Right. So Jonah had like a bunch of songs that he had given me and I sort of took them and rewrote a bunch of them. And, you know, basically like, it was almost like remixing. I took, I took a lot of his songs, like, um, you know, my, my favorite new and original song is uh, better than this. Yes. And better than this originally started as like this cheap trick sort of pop song. And I basically rewrote the entire music and just sang the vocal over it. And it worked. And I was like, this is a much cooler song. <laughs> and I remember playing it for Jonah the first time and him being like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, it was, that was like, that song to me was like an example of a moment of the band we wanted to be. Yes. But we had, you know, ultimately the realities of life were I had just moved to California to do this band. Scott from Texas, he also had moved to California to be this band. Charlie from Chamberlain also moved to California to be it. Not, I don't know, he may have not, he may have already been in California, but, but essentially we were all in a new place more or less, except for Jonah. But Jonah was in the middle of like, you know, he had a a divorce, he had child support. So we were sort of like, oh, wow. Okay. So like, we need to kind of start making money if we're going to be able to like be a band. And so we put this record together and I think it's a great record, but ultimately I think that it was, somebody called it a band out of time. And I sort of feel like that's pretty right on. I feel like when we were playing, we didn't feel like we were a part of what was happening at that time. Like, so the early 2000s, you know, that was the era of Saves the Day and Thursday and, and sort of like Newfound Glory, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, there was a lot of bands that were blowing up and sort of like, you know, things were popping. Um, and, you know, musically speaking, you know, I suppose we could have tried harder to be a part of that but we didn't really want to um it was a weird thing we just sort of were like you know so we're like oh we'll just go on tour jets to brazil we'll go on tour you know with hey mercedes we'll go on tour with our friends we went on tour with owls we went on tour you know so it was like we were very much just doing our own thing and the fact is 
the record was successful. It sold a lot of copies. We did pretty well. But in the end, I think, you know, we toured maybe more than we wanted to tour. We put a lot of pressure on our outside relationships and on our, the relationships within the band. It just was another case of like, this maybe is too much. And maybe we are a band at a time and maybe we shouldn't do this. So it, you know, that wasn't particularly a messy breakup. Uh, nobody's enemies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was just sort of like, yeah, maybe this wasn't the right place in the right time. I see. So all the elements are there. Great label, great record. We have the people. We're all together. We moved to California, but it, it just didn't shake out. Yeah. I, there's no real... Uh, yeah, there's no real better explanation for it. And, you know, Jonah and I have continued to make music ever since. So yeah, yeah, you were on his, uh, his uh, one line drawing record that just came out recently. Yep, I did that. Um, I mean, I have a song that I wrote for that was on Far's last record. That's right. Um, yes. You know, like I have stuff that he's put out, you know, that we've stuff we've written together, songs that I've written myself, like, uh, you know, he's, he's very much like a, a collaborator in every sense of the word for me. Like he's just someone who, and we've both worked on this over time. I think we both would tell you that we, at some points in our career, were awful collaborators <laughs> and, you know, basically like wanting to be in control. And I think that working together, we learned how to lie, lay back a little bit and, and allow creation to happen. And, always just submit to the best idea regardless of who thought of it. It was an exciting band for me at the time, but I, I, I had a, I think I was 18. So, but I had a bit of old soul in me, you know, I really liked Texas is the reason and all that kind of stuff. And I liked saves the day and newfound glory, but I was kind of aging out of that. So I guess I would err more towards stuff like new end original. Yeah. I mean, there were, de we definitely had an audience. I'm not really sure it's funny because like now that I've never thought about this actually. I'm not really sure who our audience was, but they were there. Yeah. <laughs> they, exactly. They came to the shows, they bought the records. Um I certainly di didn't leave that scenario feeling like, oh shucks. You know, like I, I were like, okay, we did a good thing and it just wasn't the right time. Right. Right. So we know Texas is the reason reunited once in two thousand six, right? Yeah. What was the impetus for that reunion? It was like the 10 year, I'm sorry, 10 year yeah. anniversary of Do You Know Who You Are? Right. So that was, um, that was very random and very, um, like it happened very fast. It was, it literally was just that up until 2006, I would say everyone in the band was living all over the place. And in 2006 was the first year in years where we were all in the same city again. Ah. And Daly had a birthday party that year and he, all of us were invited and we, I still have a picture from that day. We were just sitting in his living room and we were like, wow, check us out. <laughs> <laughs> was that the first time you had all been together in a long time? That was the first time that all four of us had been in the same room since the band broke up. Wow. So it was really, I think that was the thing that made us really like, wow. And, and then we started talking about it and we were just like, wow, like this is the 10 year anniversary of that record. And I think I might go so far as to say that 
everything just sort of unrolled on that day. And by the end of that party, we were like, yeah, let's play a show. Amazing. And just like that. Yeah. And so we played a show or we booked a show. And it's funny because so our booking agent at the time was uh, this guy, Tim Edwards at Flower Booking. And so Tim didn't tell us that he held uh, an entire weekend at Irving Plaza. We didn't want to play Irving Plaza. We thought we were going to play Bowery Ballroom or someplace much smaller. We didn't think that people would care. <laughs> we just wanted to play for for fun. And not that Irving Plaza is huge. It's about 1,100 to 1,200 tickets. But you know, we didn't think we were going to sell that. <laughs> that would have been the biggest show we'd ever played <laughs> or wow. the biggest show we'd ever headlined. So, yeah. of course, Tim, who's a professional, uh, was like, just trust me. Uh, we're going to do it for at Irving Plaza. And I was like, okay, I trust you. And, you know, the show sold out in less than two minutes and we were just completely blown away. And that's, you know, and then Tim called us and was like, so I saved a second night. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you bastard. At at that point, you know, I remember we were just, we were debating it because we were like, shit, like, do we release a second night? Like, it feels like we robbed a bank and got away with it. Like, are we fucking, you know, are we going to put this night out and then this night's going to sit forever and not sell out? We're going to look like assholes. <laughs> but, you know, we we ended up trusting him again and the second night sold out and we were just like, okay, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, and that was it for until 2012, we did not play again and I did not want to play again. I thought two shows... And they were great shows, and I was good with that. Was it? Was everyone happy with the shows? Were vibes good after that? Everything was great. Yeah, I mean, we had a great time, and I think like those shows were really like bonding moments. They sort of healed a lot for us, and it was also just amazing to be able to make that many people happy. Yeah, yeah. Like when when I heard you guys were playing a show, it was mind blowing to me. I went to the first one, but. Again, I used to be a mess, so I stayed up all night partying, and I I went to the show, and I was like so out of it. I didn't even remember it, and then I remembered that you guys played two songs, like two new old songs that weren't recorded, and I was like, you idiot, like you you don't remember the songs, you, you messed it up. So then I heard you were playing in 2012, and then I went to like most of those shows, and by then iPhones were out. So right. at the first show, I made sure like not to get too drunk. And I like meticulously recorded <laughs> the two songs on my iPhone. And those videos are still like the first videos on my YouTube channel. And so I was like, I got to do this right. So that that return in 2012 must have been great, right? Because it was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to hit Europe. We're going to hit the some good spots in... Uh, in the US, we're really going to announce this thing, right? Right. Well, so it was a little bit um, of a consternation, I suppose, just because, you know, I was, I'm very like, I don't, I don't know how to say this without sounding like an asshole, but I, I didn't want to keep going. Yeah. Right. Like I was fine leaving the band sort of where it was. And especially after 2006, where it was like, wow, those shows were fucking great. I don't want to touch that. That was an amazing memory. But, you know, Revelation was doing uh, their Revelation 25 and they really wanted us to headline the shows in New York. And, 
you know, it wasn't an immediate yes. And I really had to like sort of talk to the band and sort of go through it a little bit because I was like, if we do this again, then I feel like we need to actually do something real. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that everybody's on board with that. And so then it became the conversation of what does that mean? And we had to talk about the whole thing before we could say yes to Rev. But, you know, essentially that meant trying to figure out even with, you know, work schedules and family obligations, like how can we play as much as we can play, you know, really be strategic about where we play geographically and and do it in a way where you actually aren't losing money. Because again, I think we were also just very pessimistic about like what our actual draw was. <laughs> we just, yeah, like, I mean, you know, we didn't realize that people cared. <laughs> and, um, and so we, it was, it was a little difficult. And then the idea of recording those songs came up. And I think that that was the thing that I was like, okay, so Jordan wants to reissue the album or he wanted to, to repress it. And he said, you know, we have to make a decision by this date. And I said, well, what if we recorded the two songs that never got recorded and we just put out an anthology version of the record where all the songs that exist could just be in one place? Mm-hmm. And of course he was like, yes, absolutely. Let's do that. And so when that got greenlit, the idea of recording those songs, it was sort of like, that was the thing that did it for me. I wanted to record those songs. So yeah. When that was a uh, a done deal, I basically said okay, and we went about you know creating that tour and and uh, and doing it one last time. <laughs> yeah, I think you. I look at you guys as an example of like the perfect way to do things. Like the one show in two or the two shows in two thousand six, we come back for like the just the right amount of shows in two thousand twelve, and I think a couple in two thousand thirteen. Right, we don't do a whole album. We record. The two songs we have left, I think you guys did everything perfectly. I I feel like it was great. And I feel like the last show on that tour, which we decided to do in London, which was also sort of a a weird left turn. I think people wanted the last show to be in New York. But London is very much a part of Texas's story. Like, we really bonded over British music. That was the, like... Yeah, we were all like New York hardcore kids, but if you asked us what else we were listening to at that time, it was the Beatles, it was Oasis, it was the Verve, it was, you know, it was like these were the types of spiritualized was a big one. Like there was a lot of stuff that we were just like into that I think you can hear like on a song like Every Little Girl's Dream, like that was definitely moving into a place that was beyond what we were doing before. <laughs> and and maybe a little more telling of what we were interested in at the time of breaking up. Um, And so doing a last show in London sort of actually felt perfect for us. And it was an amazing show. Like people, I remember after the show, the lights went up and I looked out into the audience and people were crying. And I was just like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) It was incredible. Plus last show in Europe again, right? It was also weird. Although we did come back in 2016 uh, to play the John Bunch Memorial Benefit. And that was sort of just a no-brainer. We weren't going to say no to that. I wasn't going to say no to that. Yeah, you have to play that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So you guys weren't aware of the legacy you had, even with the internet and MySpace and Facebook and everything else? I mean, sure, there's an awareness, but there's a sort of difference between being aware 
and seeing something unfold. Um, and that's just like antimatter. I, I have an awareness that people loved it. I have an awareness that, you know, I get asked twice a week is, uh, you know, about something antimatter related. I had that awareness. And so there was a piece of faith that relaunching antimatter would yield a good result. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was not prepared for the amount of support that I received immediately in the first 48 hours, like Mm. fucking shocked. (laughs) <laughs> as shocked or maybe more shocked than when you know texas sold out urban plaza two nights in a row <laughs> yeah <laughs> because this was a fanzine you know i get that people love bands but fanzines <laughs> yeah that's true yeah. so i mean but it, you know at the same time there's something about that that makes sense to me because i i think i mentioned this in uh i i think i tweeted from texas's twitter account uh something to antimatter and i i said that Texas, we used to joke how we're the only band that we could think of, and and really to this day, the only band that I've ever seen where the flyers for their shows had ex-members of a fanzine. Like <laughs> that's how much the antimatter draw had, that it was like ex-members of Shelter, you know, 108, Fountainhead, antimatter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's gotta be a first. And yeah, I don't know anybody else who's done that. So <laughs> But it makes sense because people were very passionate about the zine. Again, I had that awareness, but when you see it play out, it's just completely fucking humbling. And it it just, yeah, I'm still sort of a little bit of a, at a loss for words. So we know you're in Thursday now, which is awesome. Another, you know, another combination of bands that when I heard it happened, I was like, yes, great. One of my favorite guitarists of all time in Thursday now, who is just modern legends. So when did that come about? How did that come about? Um, well, I always qualify that I, I say that I'm a touring member because technically uh, Tom is still a member of Thursday, but we, you know, everyone has different um, capacities for what they can do and can't do at the moment. So um, when I came into the picture, it was because there was a tour that they were doing about two years ago that Tom couldn't do. And so Frank Iero from My Chemical Romance was going to do it. And one day I was sitting at home and Thursday's manager, Paul, uh, so at this point I, I'd actually played with Thursday once. We did a, um, we did a couple of songs for this uh, web stream that they did during the pandemic, um, streaming event or whatever it was. And, um, and so I had already learned a couple of Thursday songs and played with them and it was fun. And it was like, this is cool. You know, like, um, they did like a bunch of guest guitar players on that, um, live stream. And so like, we, we had that connection already. So one day I was sitting at home and their manager, Paul calls me and is being super weird and cagey. And he's just like, so, um, did you quit your job? And I was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> and I really had just quit my job about a month ago. And I really was planning on just chilling out for a while. And, uh, and he was like, okay, so like, just like theoretically, you could be, you could maybe like do something if, if you wanted like next month. <laughs> and I was mm. like, okay, sure. What, what are you talking about? He's like, well, <laughs> I, I can't really say right now. And 
so I got off the phone with him and that was weird. So I think I called somebody in the band <laughs> and was like, what's going on? <laughs> and, uh, and so then what had happened was Frank had, was doing something around his house and he was on a ladder and he fell and broke both his wrists. Oh. And I guess he was at the hospital and he was trying to figure out what exactly the prognosis and or healing time was going to be. Um, and he was freaking out because my chem had all these tours <laughs> and he was like, fuck, what about the my chem shit? So he's freaking the fuck out. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, he has to get cast, he has to get surgery and it's like a big deal. He's going right. to make the my chem tour, but there's no way that he can make the Thursday tour. So they were basically just like, Hey, um, is it possible to learn like 15 Thursday songs in the next like two weeks? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, shit. Um, you know, Hey, look, this is sort of like what I was talking about earlier with hardcore, right? Like when people are in a lurch and they need you, hardcore kids come through. And yeah. I was like, okay, fuck it. I'll do it. I'll figure this out. Just, Bear with me. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try my hardest. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, that's just sort of what happened. I did it and, um, and we went on tour and it was a great tour. And I started getting more and more comfortable with the songs and with playing it. And the chemistry was just really great uh, personally and musically. And honestly, you know, I had this realization about touring, which was that, you know, if you had told me, or if you had asked me before playing with Thursday that um, whether like how I felt about touring, the answer I gave you always invariably, I hate touring. I fucking right. hate it. I fucking right. hate it. I love touring now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm realizing that whatever it was, there's so many different variables of touring, but these variables work for me. Um, the people, the shows, the music, the relationships, playing with these guys, I just feel completely safe. And um, we look out for each other and it's really like, you know, it feels great. And so I just have nothing but love for those guys. And I've told them that, you know, as long as they need someone, I'll, I'll be there for them. I love that. Man, what did you say? 16 songs in two weeks? Something like that. It was, it was a lot. I was really... I was, was that nerve wracking? Uh, yeah, I would have been <laughs> freaking out because uh, the band I'm in now, I had to learn, I don't know, six songs, but I had like two or three months to do it. And I, I freaked out at that. So, I mean, I've done weird shit like this before. Like I tried out for the Foo Fighters and I learned, I think, eight or 10 songs in two days. <laughs> Wait, you tried out for the Foo Fighters? <laughs> yeah, this was like in 98 or something Who was like there? That. Was the band there? Or did yeah. you play with like, no, you played with the band? I, I spent an hour with them playing. We played every song I knew. And You're kidding. Yeah, it was super fun. We just, uh, it was, uh, so a good friend of mine, Gus Brandt, he used to be a, a Florida promoter, hardcore kid. Um, he works with them and he called me up when uh, they needed a guitar player. And he was just like, would you have any interest in trying out? And I was like, you know, that's weird. I, I would do it for the experience. Let's just fucking go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I did, and it was, a, it was a fun experience. It was cool to play with those guys. They were all really super talented and, and fucking gracious. Uh, How many songs did you play? 
I mean, yeah, like I, every song I learned. So I, I'm pretty sure it was like eight to 10 songs, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But their songs are a lot easier to learn than Thursday songs because Foo, Foo Fighters songs are verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Right. Like, yeah. Like I watched, a, yeah. <laughs> I saw a video you posted of like one part of a Thursday song and I was like, oh my God, that looks really hard. <laughs> so when I, I, I joke about this. This was, I, I still have it, uh, a piece of paper that, um, I tried to write down the arrangement to Paris's flames when I was learning it. And I wound up taking up the entire piece of paper. Like there were like 14 parts to it. <laughs> and I took a picture of that piece of paper and I texted it to Steve. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> um, so that was the hardest part. The arrangements are really tricky and, and they're deceptive. They're, there's parts that you wouldn't, like when you hear it as a listener, it just registers to you almost as like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, pre-chorus, maybe, maybe a bridge here, maybe an outro there. It doesn't register to you as the listener as being that many parts, but when you're playing it, it really is that many parts. So it's, it was a chat, it was a challenging situation, but it was great too, because my respect for the band just went up the roof. I was just like, this is really thoughtful creative cool music <laughs> and you know it, it's fun to play music that i didn't write because it allows me to get into a different headspace um and now it feels like it's part of my musical language amazing yeah yeah i love that you're touring with that band now it's a it's a great pairing and you know what i'm not surprised you got it done because i first noticed this during the 2012 Texas is the reason run, you know, like you and that band were a big influence on my guitar playing. So I would watch you to see what you were playing. And I was like, wow, you you are like, you are really carrying a lot of guitar weight in Texas. Like you, right. I, I didn't realize how intricate it was until I watched you play it live and remembered it. There's definitely a lot of things going on. It's actually funny because Tom you know, the guitar player on Thursday, like he's literally, when I started learning the songs, he said to me, honestly, I was very influenced by you. So you're going to probably see something. <laughs> <laughs> and they're definitely what I, what I, and I've been saying, you know, the joke is that now I'm, I'm basically paying for my sins as a guitar player <laughs> because, you know, I really did do a lot. Like the guitar parts in Texas, I almost wanted, I feel like it'd be cheesy, but there's a part of me sometimes where I'm like, I want to do guitar run-throughs just like on YouTube or something, just to let people see what is actually being played. Because every time I see someone playing it, or every time I hear a cover or like a, a new cover version of Back into the Left just came out this week. And I was listening to that and I was like, it's cool. And, and, you know, it may not even have been their intention to hit all of the little idiosyncrasies that I think kind of make that song what it is but like there's so much to it the the closest anyone has ever come to playing texas is the reason like spot on was this band from japan i saw their video on youtube and i was like oh my god this is psychotically on point <laughs> and 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 just like and that made me very happy because i was a very psychotic guitar player i did feel like i had to play like six parts at once and as a result, like those songs are very difficult to play. Like they would hurt my hands. And so when I started playing in Thursday, the first tour that I did, I remember after shows, 
going into my bunk and being like, oh my God, my fucking hands hurt. Yeah. And it was really like, it was that. It was like, I'm paying for my sins. I've like <laughs> somehow like, you know, if I influence Tom in any way, I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause when you hear Texas songs and Thursday songs too, but Texas, you know, it just sounds like, uh, it sounds somewhat simple, but when I watched you playing those songs, I, I realized everything I wasn't hearing. And I was, I was just seeing all the movement you were doing. And I was like, good Lord, look right. at that. And that was yeah. the point. And that's, that's what I appreciate about Thursday in the, at the end of the day, punishment or not, is that the songs are very deceptive. They sound much simpler than they are. Right. In our last moments here, let's circle back to antimatter. We want to tell people, well, let, let's, let's give them everything, Norman. We want to know where we can see you and we want to know where we can hear you. We want to know where we can read Antimatter. So Antimatter just relaunched. Uh, the first article is up on Substack, yes? Yes. So that is at uh, antimatter.substack.com. And then uh, I'm only going to, I think I'm really only going to be on socials through Instagram. Uh, yeah. So that's at antimatter.zine. And that you know, that's a, that's already becoming like a pretty cool community. And I'm, I'm, I'm psyched about the community that sort of exists on Instagram um, and how it's moving back and forth with the sub stack. And so, you know, that's, that's going to be my focus now, you know, like I sort of kind of accidentally made a new job, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm happy about that. And I, I, I want to expand it. And as, as the support grows, hopefully, um, you know, if we can continue to get the same rate of paid subscribers who want to support this project and, and um, you know, want to see it grow, that's what I want. I want to use these resources that the readers are, are providing me with to pay photographers, to maybe create video content, to, you know, I don't know that there's a podcast in the works because, like I said, I think that that's maybe not my wheelhouse, but who knows? I, I would ultimately like to expand it in any way that I can expand it, um, because I do now feel like antimatter is a part of hardcore story, and I want to be able to give this part of it back. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And you never know what's going to happen. If you asked me in 2019, do you think you'll ever do a podcast? I would have said hell no. But here we are. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I mean, one of the cool things too is that, like, you know, I can continue to do antimatter, and it doesn't. Uh, interfere with the with going on tour with thursday if anything right go, going on tour thursday is basically like cool like i'm already thinking like we're playing shows with gel and we're playing shows with koyo and vinnie caruana and you know all these people that are great and that i'm psyched to play with and i would love to bring them into antimatter so you've got access to everyone yeah i'm i'm in a good position again to be able to do this with the new generation and, and with the old, I want to make sure that that connective tissue remains. I want the newer kids, the kids who are coming in and, you know, the brand new flat spot record kids and the triple B kids. I want them all to like go back and be like, yo, you know, actually the mob was pretty good, <laughs> you know, or whatever, whatever crazy hardcore band. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big kraut uh, evangelist. If, if you want to listen to eighties, hardcore, Kraut was, you know, by far like one of the best bands uh, to come out of that scene. And I would love to see a Kraut resurgence. So if you're new to hardcore, start there and see where you go. 
Um, but that's 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 all. Like I said, a part of the antimatter ethos is is wanting to connect those styles and generations. I love that. Yeah, that that's the same thing I'm trying to do. You know, I want to talk to all of the legacy folks and everyone I listened to growing up, like yourself. But I'm also very interested in the the awesome new stuff is out there. You know, Flat Spot and Triple B, like you're talking about, Scowl, Zulu, all those exciting new bands that are out there. Koyo, a lot of them have been on the show. It's a, it's a great time to be involved in this music. So it's a great time for you to be back because it's, it, it, you know, there's just a lot of exciting things happening. Yeah. And I feel like this, it's, it's crazy, but it's, it's, this was a situation where, you know, from begin, from the beginning thoughts of relaunching antimatter to now, it was a difficult, like, I definitely, like, it was a difficult thought process to kind of like, think about going back into this, but there was also a no brainer aspect to it because in terms of the scene and where we are right now, uh, I do feel like this is the best time for antimatter to happen again. Yes. Definitely the best time in the last 30 years. Yes. Was there a specific, I've read uh, your first article back and, you know, some of what led to you deciding to do this again, what's happening in the scene and everything else. But when did you get like the first germination of the idea? Was there like a specific moment? There were always times where I'd meet somebody and I would think, oh, I wish I could interview you. <laughs> because I meet a lot of interesting people who, you know, have stories to tell. And, uh, and so I think that that was always in the back of my mind. But the idea of doing, there was an idea that I had at one point where I thought like, maybe I'll go back into print in the sense of there were all these like magazines that were coming out again, like not necessarily music magazines, but these really nice, perfect bound, almost book-like magazines that were, you know, either queer or like interior design or tech or, you know, all these other niches were sort of creating a new print culture for a minute. And so there was a part of me was like, okay, what if I did a, a hardcore zine that was like this put together? Like, yes. But the idea of writing enti an entire magazine, again, is by myself is very daunting. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that where I'm at with the publishing schedule that I've created for Antimatter, it feels very doable. I feel confident that I can keep this up and keep this pace up. And, uh, and so this seems more like the first time where I felt like this is possible. I love it. I love it. And I'm excited to see more, you know, because uh, I like your interview style. Uh, antimatter is just classic. Oh, and we, we, we failed to mention the antimatter comp. Yeah, I mean, come that's, on, that's any comp that opens with <laughs> shovel by quicksand. Gee, how did you put that together? Did you, did you just ask the bands, can you donate a track? Like did people record stuff for the comp? Like how did this work? Both. It was, um, well, I mean, I should say the comp wasn't my idea. It was pitched to me by Fred Feldman, um, who is maybe better known in the scene for having done triple crown records. But at the time he was doing another planet and another planet was a subsidiary of profile and another planet was basically doing a lot of hardcore stuff. So they were reissuing Cro-Mags and Leeway and Murphy's law. And they did this like Sunday matinee hardcore comp. So he was spearheading all this stuff. And I loved that because, you know, those records are classic. 
And so he was like, I really want to do something that's the current generation of hardcore. And I just feel like antimatter is it. Like you're, what you're doing is what hardcore feels like now. So would you be willing to put together a comp and let me put it out? And yeah, I was pretty much like immediately, like, I would love to fucking do that. I would, I absolutely want to do that. And so I put together my wish list of bands. Um, I got mostly everybody that was on my wish list. There were a couple of that, that got away, like sick of it all. I really wanted them to be on it, but yeah, I was, I mean, I honestly was kind of amazed because also there were bands at the time like Civ and Quicksand that were on major labels. And I sort of thought like, oof, I'm not going to be able to get that, but I got it. (laughs) Right. And so I was like, okay, fuck. Okay. This is happening. This is real. Um, and and shovel was a song that I specifically, you know, went for. It already existed. I knew it existed. I loved it. I was like, "This is your best song." I don't know why this isn't on a record. And they were like, "Are you kidding? This is not our best song." And I was like, "It's your best song." <laughs> the breakdown in that song is like legendary. I love it. And you know, it's funny because many years later, when they got back together, uh, Alan Cage, who was one of the main people, who was like, "That is not our best song," was like. Okay, I see your point. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the comp, what I, you know, the main thing that I really wanted to do with it was I wanted to, maybe without actually saying it, I wanted to present a, a modern hardcore comp where no two bands really sounded the same. And part of that, again, is going back to this antimatter ethos, to the foundation of everything that I do. The idea that hardcore is more than music. Every single band on that comp had played together or were friends with each other or came from this same community or grew up together or whatever it is around the country. And they all came from the same place and recognized each other in that way. There was fucking zero gatekeeping. Mouthpiece was not like, well, we can't be on a comp with Chamberlain. <laughs> they were friends. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, that is what I'm looking for. And I think that that's one of the reasons why antimatter is relevant again, because I do feel like we're getting back into that zone of mixed bills where bands just are starting to fucking go wild and sound like whatever the fuck they want to sound like. Yep. And you know, I think that a lot of the new bands are getting into that place where they're starting to branch out and no two bands are sounding the same anymore. And that's what I want. This this bill that I was talking about that we're doing in the fall with uh, Thursday, you know, with Jell and Koyo and Vinny, it's like, there's, yeah, none of those bands sound alike. None of them. But we come from this community. I always say that on this show. I say, I want those mixed bills back. And it seems like that's becoming more of a thing. There's some flyer you always see. It's like, Texas is the reason, Snapcase, Bloodlet, like all right. these crazy bands. I want to see more of that. Yeah. And I and those shows were great. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I always talk about a show in Vermont that Texas played with Madball. And it was, I don't remember who opened it, but I remember it was Texas and Madball. We were like the the draw. <laughs> and it was an awesome show. And I remember hanging out with Madball at the merch booth and they were like, yeah, and I love what you guys are doing. And he was like, great. We love you. You do. You know, it was, a, it was, that's hardcore. Like we just respected each other and we knew that we came from the same place and, and that whatever we were doing was real. And so that's, that's so important to sort of keep in sight. It's so important not to let people segregate the community in any way. We got to stay together. 
It's got to be a fucking united effort. That's fucking how many hardcore songs have been about that? (laughs) If we we can't learn that, (laughs) then we can't learn anything. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm excited. You know, uh, so everyone out there, Antimatter is back. We can we can subscribe to Norman and we can support him financially. In addition to reading all the great stuff he has to offer, we can see him out on the road with Thursday and we need to do those things. Right, Norman? <laughs> well, if you want to, but <laughs> we have to we just have to. <laughs> I always say if you see the value, let me know it. There you go. There you go. Well, Norman, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you've been a big influence to me with your bands throughout the years and in my own musicianship. So I just want to thank you so much for everything you've done, everything you're doing, and thank you for taking the time to come on this show and talk to me. I appreciate it all. Thank you so much. And there you have it, Norman Brannan. Wow. Easily one of my favorite conversations I've done on this show. Probably the most important album in my life is Do You Know Who You Are by Texas Is The Reason. I can't explain why or how or it just, I just heard it randomly, you know, like online or whatever. And it just grabbed me at the right time, 18 years old. I have my first girlfriend. I'm figuring things out. I'm experimenting with partying and coming of age and all this stuff. And that album was the soundtrack for all of that. And Hey, Keith. Yes. So in relation to the New Scene podcast and maybe your musical life in general, would it be safe to say that Norman Brannan is the reason? (laughs) (laughs) Or at least a big part of it? Uh, Yeah. Yes. Nice. Yes, because, uh, yeah, like that that's an album. Do you have an album, Martin, where people are like, hey, I put on this album and thought of you? I have that association with that album where like people just think of me when they think of Do You Know Who You Are by Texas is the Reason. It has happened. That's an honor. Yeah. That's a really, I, I think when something hits you in a certain way and then other people hear it and it reminds them of you. Yeah. That's, that's a, yeah, that's an honor. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So... You know, getting to ask him the questions I was curious about in terms of Texas, him saying that what there was like 26 major labels at the time and all 26 of them. <laughs> You've got 28 <laughs> offers. Yeah. yeah. You got 28 offers. That was crazy. And just there, there was some details about the breakup and everything that I hadn't heard before. And New End Original, that was really exciting when that came around because Texas is the reason was gone at that time. And, you know, a new band with half of Texas is the reason. And the front man from far, Jonah, very exciting. That's a classic album. I mean, I could go on and on. The guy has just done so much. And I'm really excited, Martin, that uh, Antimatter is back too. I kind of feel a kinship with Norman in, in his interview style. It's more personal. You know, I don't focus on like music or recording or eh, not all the time. Not And not so much. I'm, I'm very interested in the people personally and i know norman is too and i'm very glad that uh antimatter is back and that it's a print publication and like not just a podcast you know no offense to podcasts uh, because i am one <laughs> but i you know what when i research guests i like to read print because 
I don't know, it's easier for me to just pick out what I need. And it doesn't spoil the conversation. Like when I talk to somebody, I want to hear their voice for the first time. I want to discover their personality for the first time. So if I listen to another podcast, it's almost like I'm spoiling it for myself. And Norman does such a great job interviewing people that, uh, you know, there's a great print source for me to look at if uh, we happen to be talking to the same people. But, you know, Norman's done it all. He's still doing a lot of great things and there's not enough nice things that I can say. No, and you talk about like that personal edge of it. I think that's for me at least it's it's it invites further kind it adds something to the music or to the the thing you're reading when you know a little something about the person who's who's doing it on the person who's being interviewed and the person who's doing the interviewing. And one of the things I loved about that conversation was I don't even think you know it can be kind of um I don't know, not intimidating. I don't know what the word is, but like not and not excluding, but like, you know, say you don't say you're not a huge shelter fan. Say you're not a huge Texas is the reason fan. You can listen to that interview and kind of know what's going on and it informs the listening and sometimes inspires listening you wouldn't normally do. I think it's kind of a nice invitation to like dig deeper into the music in a lot of ways. And it's just also just outside of that, even without the musical thing. It's just like, oh, this is an interesting person. I want to know what their creative output is like. So that was, I loved that. It was wonderful listening to him. Yeah, he is super interesting. Like he's done so much. You could easily just do two hours on his early days in New York City and 108 and Resurrection and Shelter and CBGBs and all that stuff. And look, I've heard a lot of interviews with Norman out there, four hours, five hours. He can go that long easily. So thank you so much, Norman, for coming on the show. Now, Martin, Yes, it is time for us to talk about our favorite subject. Me? Ourselves. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> ourselves. How are we doing? How are we doing? Now, Martin, everyone knows how I'm doing. They listen to me every week. They know what's going on. Let me ask you first, Martin, how are you doing? What's going down? I'm doing swell, Keith. Everything is perfect. Everything is perfect? Yes, no, um, I'm good, man. Like, uh, like I said, I'm listening to music and painting a lot, and that's my life. That's my livelihood, and it's not. It doesn't feel like a job, and it just kind of feels like you know. I mean, you, something like you're experiencing with this podcast, where it's like, oh my goodness, like this is what I can I get to do, and it's almost like I don't have to carve out time for it. It's just the time is there, and it is what I uh, what I do, you know. <laughs> so so life is good, you know. How long have you been a full-time artist now? I fell into it probably about February of 2021, full-time, as far as it being like the only thing that I do for income. But again, it doesn't feel like that because I before that, it was kind of a surprise and I kind of just fell into part-time stuff where I was just kind of showing people paintings I was doing and um, sharing them on, the, on, on social media and stuff. And then people started buying them. And then, uh, and that started probably in about 2014. I'd always been into art, like my whole life, whether it was music or drawing or coloring or, you know, all these types of things. But yeah, 2021, you know, it's always darkest before dawn. Like my employment stuff was just really dark. Everything was really dark. And I had a little bit of a cushion that meant I didn't have to dive immediately back into finding gainful employment. And 
painting started to sell and I started to do a little bit of work in the sense of like finding places to have shows of my paintings and getting involved with things like that and taking commissions. And now here we are, you know, two plus years later, I guess. And, um, and I paint every day (laughs) and it doesn't feel like work. It feels like I paint and the bills get paid and everything is cool. It doesn't feel like a cheat code for life. Cause I I think about you, Martin, because you know, I'm not painting all day, every day, or just doing exactly what I want to do. But my day job, I really like my day job. I get to work from home. I get to make my own schedule. And and that doesn't mean, you know, I'm taking days off and stuff. But I mean, like, I can kind of schedule my day how I want it to be. I can do the bursts of work when I want to do them if I'm not at a client thing, or if it's not a really busy day. I can structure my day how I want. And when I think about that, I'm just so happy because I used to have to drag my ass into an office in Manhattan every day and back. And when you do that, you're just exhausted. And you know, you, you did that for a minute. You hated it. I, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of other things at work. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, we were kind of in and out of the pandemic at that point and there was wild things like the January 6th thing going on. And just, there was just a, it was a high anxiety time, I think for everybody. But also it was something new to me as far as, you know, navigating that kind of world where you have a, a job where you need to get a haircut at once a month and you need, you can't wear sneakers and, you know, and there's like a sales aspect to it in a sense. Um, I don't really want to go too far into it just because it's like so subjective from my, from my point of view. And I could easily fall over the line into like, fuck that place. (laughs) So, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, I I look at like when I started that job, which was the first time in a while that I'd had a 40 plus hour a week job that I was very well compensated for. But, you know, when I look at my website in 2020, I think I finished like eight paintings. And in 2021, that number went up to like 70 or 80. So it's the kind of thing where me taking a little break to see what would happen and just really to do something I love doing and to like kind of, you know, recover in a way, just kind of take a break from and that, that, that filling the role of financial of providing financially was, it's still something I don't understand or like I try not to think of too much because I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> it's inspiring though. I think about you often because that's the dream. You are home. You get to paint awesome paintings, which is what you enjoy doing. And people give you money for those paintings and you pay your mortgage and bills. Yeah. That's, that's the tall and skinny of it. But there's like a huge intangible part of that too, where it's like, I don't know, like it sounds too over the top to say something like I bring people joy, but like, do you know what I mean? But there's a sense of connection when I, when I make something and somebody tells me a story about what it, how it, how it hit them and, and that they want, to have it in their home and that they want to see it every day. And that's, I don't know, man, that's, that's beyond my realm of like, of, of that's a connection on a different level for me. That's something that somebody needed to hear or see or wanted to see, or it was going to make them better yeah, in one way or another, or help a healing process and bring a smile, whatever it might be, a, some sort of positive force. When I just do what I'm doing, cause I think it looks cool. <laughs> and then somebody's like, that really touched me that and i want it <laughs> like that that there's something yeah that, that that's a for me that's if it happened for free it would be a big deal the fact that i can eat 
off of it is 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 wild. I love that. It's the best feeling because that's happened to me sometimes. You know, the podcast, like people will say, people have written and said, "Oh, this episode helped me," or "This discussion helped me," and and it's the best feeling. And I feel like I feel like with painting, like people really like music. You can write a song and touch somebody, right? Like I can have a deep discussion with somebody, and someone can really relate to that. But like painting, I feel like is uh is like a really special thing where you know to to do it and then have someone connect with it right yeah but one that book about that once upon a time in shaolin record kind of talked about this a lot in the sense that since the advent of like streaming services and and music essentially being for free and people expecting it to be free yeah has i don't know like i hate to sound like an old you know back in my day kind of guy, but it's like, yeah, we'd watch a skate video and at the end, you know, wait till the credits and see like, Oh, music provided by SST records or like music provided by lookout records or like Matt Hensley's part, operation Ivy sound system, whatever it might be. And then we'd have to write a letter to that label and find out what records they had and then send them back like a check or money order (laughs) And then get the record and hope it was good. So that by the time like you got to put on, like say energy by op Ivy, you'd already put in a lot of work (laughs) and you already fucking like were, you already kind of appreciated it. And there was artwork involved and there was lyrics written and there was like all this, all this connection on so many different levels. And now it's like, I mean, I do it too. Like I, I can't, I'm not a purist. I don't buy, I don't buy records. I don't buy CDs. I have, you know, I, I barely have the, I have a tape deck and there's a record player in my home, but 99.9% of the time I'm listening to, I'm listening to streaming services. Yeah. And that's why, like, when you say like, what are you listening to recently? Like, I can't really say like, Oh, this band or that band, because I just, like you said, like I'll put on gang of four and then it'll like say like radio based on gang of four. And I'll be hearing a lot of stuff that I don't know when it's from. I don't know where it's from. I don't know like who it's affiliated with. But I like it. Yeah. But it used to be that if I was playing something, I could tell you everything about it. <laughs> you know, I could tell you like what the lyrics were and what the, you know, I, I, I would have read articles in magazines or zines about it. And nowadays it's kind of like it's the attention span is so much shorter and, and the actual product feels disposable. Right. Which is a, a travesty, if you ask me. But I feel like. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't think that painting or or visual art is any more important or less important than than music. I think it just depends on the person and it's very subjective. And I try to remind myself that if I dig a little deeper into whatever it is that I'm like, you know, whether it's a book I'm reading or a, a song I'm hearing or a painting I'm looking at or whatever it might be, a movie I'm watching, that if I look a little deeper into it and just don't go like, "Oh, that was cool. Next." Like that I'm going to get more out of it, that the experience is going to be more beneficial to me and I'm going to appreciate it more. And I'm going to like, it's going to, it's going to benefit me more. That's a good point. Yeah. So Martin, you were a musician at one point in your life. And now you have the rarer story of, uh, you were a musician at one point and then you stopped doing it. And, uh, I have this correct. Yes. So far. Okay. So now you, you don't miss it, right? I don't anymore. I mean, I mean, I miss being 25, like <laughs> a little bit, but not much. Like, my, you know, uh, like I said, like 
creative output has always been something that was going on in my life that I feel like needs to go on. And the music, you know, was the, was the lion's share of that creative output from when I was probably about 14 till I was about 36 or 37. Yeah. And, and it shifted like when, in, in, I think 2014, I didn't want to be in a band anymore, but I didn't know what else to really like dig into. So I played a cut, you know, like a backyard barbecue and a couple cafes, uh, a show at videology that was kind of like me and my friend, Brendan and my friend, Greg, like Brendan's an animator, Greg's a writer. So we just did kind of a hodgepodge, like, Oh, I'll play some songs. Brendan will show a, a, some of his animations and Greg will do a reading of some of his, his music. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Of some of his, uh, his, his writing. And it just wasn't enjoyable. It was, it felt way too much like, Hey, check me out. Look at me. Like I'm playing a guitar and singing. <laughs> and like, there was no one there to share the, the, either the glory with or shoulder the blame with. It was just me. Mm. And I don't know. It just did not feel right. It didn't feel like a band. It didn't feel good. And right around when that, when I was experimenting with that, I was also experimenting with painting and that just felt a whole lot better. And when I was done with a painting or when I was done with a handful of them, I could, you know, I don't know, say, ask coffee labs in Terrytown, like, Hey, can I put my paintings up here? And they'd be like, yes. And then I'd put them up and I'd leave. <laughs> and I didn't have to like worry about whether I played that painting good and if those people <laughs> liked it or why they're not clapping. It was just like, yeah, I'm out. I'm going to, I'm going to start painting more stuff now. Yeah. You know what? If now that I think about it, it suits your personality perfectly because you just show up, you put up the paintings and you get out of there. And I, I'm similar. Like, uh, I was. Well, there was a couple band. There was a couple years between my last band and the one I'm in now, and that's when this podcast started. And that's perfect because I talk to one person at a time, and then uh, there's no camera. And when it's done, I turn it off and I walk away, and I can just sit and edit with it. And that's, I mean, there's a performative aspect to it, you know. I mean, we're doing it right now. We're doing it in real time right <laughs> now. But it's it's way more kicked back, and it doesn't. I don't know. It's it doesn't how to say this um there's not as much pressure involved in it and it and it feels like there's less thinking about what other people are thinking in it envision in, in what i do and in this podcast it's like we're having a conversation you have conversations with people who've, who've whose creative output you respect and, and and love and all that and this kind of thing and that feels good but for me like i mean you still play in a band and Again, there was an aspect, uh, there is an aspect of it that I missed that camaraderie and that feeling of like, you know, three, four, five people performing and creating something larger than the sum of its parts, in a sense, mm-hmm. and affecting people in a certain way. Like you said, like how, how Texas is the reason how that record affected you and how it made other people you know think of you. Like that's incredibly powerful and incredibly like personal and, and just, I don't know. It, it's, it's it's like a connect i don't know it's a, almost a spiritual thing in the sense that it's hard for me to like get words around it or like i can't like hold it and say it's this yeah. you know it's this very important force but like i don't know it just kind of perhaps some you know these things have an expiration date and for me like the expiration date came up and thankfully i was you know at the at the time when i got really into painting i was doing that chalk stuff in the woods too and it just kind of everything flowed like very organically and very naturally into like, okay, you're not doing music anymore. Now you're doing visual art. Now you're painting, you know, and that been treating me good. Tell the people about, uh, 
the chalk drawing under the bridge because you're kind of a local legend for that. And that's sort of how you got started, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was staying with my parents after a particularly dark part <laughs> of my life. And one of the things I was doing to kind of try to get my head and heart and everything back into some sort of working order was just walking around in the woods a lot. And there was this, uh, the Pecanico River runs through this section of, of the woods near my parents' house, near my house now too, where I live now in Sleepy Hollow. And there was just this like cool little triple arch bridge that like went over the, the river. And on one side of the bank, one bank of it, there was a, you know, like a place where like high school kids would go and like smoke weed and, and drink forties and stuff like this and some crappy graffiti on the walls. And I'd go down there just cause it was right on the river and it was really beautiful and really for lack of a better word, serene, you know, it just was a, a cool spot. And um, yeah, I just brought some sidewalk chalk up there one day and started kind of messing around. And, uh, and that led to filling up like a nine by 15 foot wall. And then that led to my friend Ryan saying like, Hey, we should have an opening. And then like, we had like an event in the woods. It was really fun. And at the end of it, I made a bunch of water balloons for everybody. And we kind of went firing squad on it. Kind of the chalk was, you know, at the beginning of it was sort of a, a, an exercise in impermanence you know, doing it in chalk so that it was like understood, like this ain't going to last, but the process is what's important. Yeah. And and again, that, you know, that was one thing of many that were in place and continue to be in place that it like took me out of a really fucking dark place, like a very dark downward spiral and have put me back on like a, on an upward trajectory. Martin, at one time you were on Revelation Records. Yes. Pitch Black uh, put out two LPs on Rev. And one of those like hashtag signs moments from that text I sent you earlier, our first LP, number 113. No. Yes. No. Believe it. Wow. Yes. So what? Uh, around what year was that? You were living, uh, you moved to Oakland from New York City, yes? From Gainesville, Florida, actually. Wait, you were living in Florida? I lived in Gainesville from June of 96 till September of 96. You're kidding me. Yeah. It took three months to like break my spirit <laughs> and, and run home. But that was not run home, but run, you know, uh, across as far away from Florida as I could get while still being on the same continent, really. What made you pick Oakland? Um, that was the only other place I'd spent any time where I had friends in place that, um, that could, you know, put me up on their couch until I was up on my own feet, this kind of thing. And um, yeah, I was encouraged. It's the kind of thing where I was 19. So it was, I had a couple of friends, I think, who had moved out to California and I had been out there a couple of times when I was 17 and when I was 18. And I made some friends. So when I kind of said, I need to get out of here to them, they were like, dude, fucking come. Like, come out here. We got you covered. We'll put you up. I'll get you a job, et cetera, et cetera. It seemed really cushy. Wow. And like, people were going to love up on me. So I went where the love was, really. I like that. Yeah. So when you get out there, how do you get the band started? Like, how do you get the attention of Revelation Records? How does that all come together? I, you know, I'm now that I think about it, I don't remember how Pitch Black got started, per se. <laughs> I know that me and Kevin Cross, who was the guitar player, and Jamie Morrison, the drummer, I know that we were friends. I forget, like, I don't think we hung out at the same bar. I know that, like, skateboarding was involved somehow, and we just, I almost want to, I forget. I totally forget how it started. But 
I know that it started morphing in like 99 into something real. And it was kind of like skateboarding and horror movies had a lot to do with it. And I think that had a lot to do with a lot of the music that was coming out then. You know, that was like kind of when like horror punk was turning into a thing and like, you know, AFI was starting to kind of get like gothy and dark. And, and there was a lot of uh, that. There was just that, that vibe. Yeah, it was uh, Alkaline Trio was kind of like that. But there was like this there was like this thing happening in punk and pop punk. It was, I, some of it's cringe when you look at it now. It's like, oh, I love you so much. I'm going to kill you. And they're going to find you in a trunk. <laughs> yes. And there was like a lot of that going on. But, you know, yeah. Well, there, yes. And but then on another hand, it's kind of like it, there's a rich history of it. You yeah. know, I mean, dating back to the Misfits, dating back to Alice Cooper, dating back to like this, even the Standells playing on the Munsters, like shit, like, like shit like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like. Rock and roll's always had like a dark thing and punk is just kind of, you know, an, a, a form of one of the evolutionary forms of it. And at the time, you know, we were digging like TSOL and, and Drunk Engines and Agent Orange. And as much as like some of those bands were like wearing black eyeliner and weird scary masks, like Agent Orange were kind of just skaters who were bummed out and like frustrated with being teenagers <laughs> and like wrote dark punk songs. And we, we kind of followed that lead because that's where we were at. And, you know, that's, it was just very, again, it was very natural. It wasn't like, let's start a horror punk band. Right. No, a, a lot of people were, uh, that was the thing. Like uh, horror movies were big. I remember we were watching evil dead all the time. And I remember bands, sampling horror movies all the time it's like a coming of age thing for a lot of young people one of the first pitch black buttons we made was uh that was kind of a super high contrast image of um of bruce campbell's hand choking himself like in that scene and <laughs> i think it's evil dead 2 yeah but yeah we were super stoked on that stuff and super inspired by it and and that's you know i mean that's where it started off and then it by the end by the you know I think we were around for about five years, I think 99 or almost six Mm -hmm. by the end, we were kind of getting things were broadening, you know what I mean? Like as, as I think they should in any creative endeavor, they were evolving. They were going somewhere different. They weren't as fast and in your face and necessarily like it was like less evil dead and more Jacob's ladder. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was getting more like into that realm rather than like shock and gore it was more kind of like mind terror (laughs) you know yeah more cerebral yeah yeah yeah. i'd like to think in any case we were we were getting a little bit more comfortable letting other influences into the music other than loud hard fast rules you know so five years two lps on revelation records right Mm -hmm. and a, a seven inch on cheetah's records and a split EP on Lookout with the enemies. So what happened? Um, what happened? Um, Lookout, we had a lot of friends that were working at Lookout. Um, from over the years, Kevin Cross had played guitar in Big Rig with Jesse Michaels from Operation Ivy and Doug Sangalang from, um, from Screw 32. And so he knew people there and had like a relationship with people there. And we had friends that worked there. And I think... The enemies we were just good. We were friends with Jason from that band has gone on to just be amazing. I don't know. He's played in Hawkwind. 
He's oh, played wow. with the UK subs. He's got a couple of bands of his own going. Mike from that band ended up playing second guitar, touring guitar in Green Day for a couple of years. Oh, wow. Yeah. That so was like, him. Yeah. Oh. And I, and Dave Ed from Neurosis was was playing bass there at the end of their run, I think. So it, we were all buddies and we were both in a position where we wanted to put something out. And we talked, I forget how like Lookout came in, but they were interested. So we put out an EP, recorded that stuff with Paul Miner down at for the record studio paul minor of uh death by stereo and yeah kevin had a lot of a lot he had a lot we all had a lot of friends in the scene because we were always playing music or at shows or our roommates were in bands etc etc but kevin had played in nerve agents as well so he had like kind of a lot of friends in the hardcore scene and that's what kind of led to rev picking us up probably around 2002 I think the first LP came out in 2003. So that's, uh, yeah, that's where that, that's how that came about was I think nerve agents were on Rev. How did the band end? Um, badly, <laughs> <laughs> not horribly. A lot of it had to do with, with, I think me being, you know, maybe immature is a good, a good word for it. Maybe addicted to a bunch of vast array of different things like <laughs> had to do with it. Um, but, yeah, we were on a tour that was very, very badly funded and very, very badly promoted and just very bad. Like, you know, playing to the bartender and like the fucking porter, that, like <laughs> in Des Moines, Iowa on like a Tuesday night. There was like it was a tour full of those kind of shows. Yeah. Those will uh, those will destroy the spirit of any band. Yeah. And, and a couple of the guys were in a position where being on this tour was fucking up their home life in a sense, like fucking up their finances, making it impossible for them to like run businesses or do work they were doing. So there was that kind of stress. And meanwhile, I was kind of in a self-absorbed place where I was like, you guys are fucking up my dream. Like this is being on in a touring band is my fucking dream. And you guys just want to go home. I don't care if we're paying to one person. And it was like, looking back, it's like, Oh Yeah. That's that's what a 25-year-old junkie does. <laughs> but um but yeah, like I think towards the end of towards the middle of one of the tours, the keyboard player at the time, lovely human being named Jeremy Goody, who's still making a lot of music and producing a lot of music, recording a lot of music out in Oakland. He had flown home from Albany, I think, and our we had a show booked at CBGB's with Temper Temper who we were on tour with and I forget who else played and we played that show and it kind of ticked a big box for us of like, we played CBGBs. I think it closed down within a year after that. Mm. And then the decision was made, like, let's just drive home. And I took it real hard. And when we got back, you know, I think Jamie had been like, Oh, so like a couple of days had passed. Well, when are we going to practice? And I was like, Oh, well, you know, when you start a fucking band, like, <laughs> like again, like it's something that I feel bad about, but yeah. We've, you know, we've had discussions over the years and it's all been, you know, it's all water under the bridge. Yeah. And when, I mean, when you're young, you don't, well, let me, let, all right, let me keep it on me. When I was young, I didn't know how to do anything correctly, especially interpersonal band relationships. And, you know, I probably said things that I shouldn't have or did things I shouldn't have done or was a little too, uh, a little too harsh when it came to leaving or in that type of thing. And I don't know, that's just, it's just the way I handled shit, but uh, not a good, not a good thing to do. But hey, I guess I didn't know any better. 
nothing that I'm proud of, but it's what I knew how to do then. And it's like, you know, obviously in the 20 years that have elapsed since there's, you know, I've got different values and different ways of conducting myself. And there's definitely a lot more grace in my life in a lot of different ways. Yes. And, you know, at the time though, I thought like being a shitty person was like a badge of honor in a sense, like in a lot of different, not entirely. I wasn't like walking around kicking babies in the face or anything weird like that, but like having the opportunity to be like, you know, like, fuck you, this band is over. Like that was appealing at the time. Oh yeah. Like the, uh, the affected drama and all that shit. Like I used to, yeah, I used to, I used to be into that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's again, like, that's why I used the word immature earlier. It's something that at the time was like, seemed like a cool, cool way to be. And now looking back, it's like, Oh, being a dick to like people who are essentially like your brothers, that's a cool way to be. It's like, no, it's, it's actually not at all. Right. But, um, yeah, but both of them ended up doing a lot of cool stuff. Jamie started a band with Dave Ed and Larry from the Ricketts called Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> they were pretty brutal and awesome. I love that name. Kevin carried on making a lot of art, and I think he's got a YouTube channel and making music. I think he's out in Portland. But we're all connected, you know. Like, we're, like there's a, there's that bond that comes with I think making going into a creative endeavor with other people and being in a van with other people in a small room playing and and letting that kind of stuff flow. That there's a certain kind of connective tissue that's that's formed. That in our case has you know it'll never. We're not in touch a lot, but it'll never really break. I have a feeling it's the kind of thing that when we're in the same room again at some point, it'll be like, oh yeah, not a day's gone by. I like that. So you've done it all at this point: East Coast punk, West Coast punk, back to the East Coast, full time artist, living the dream now. The dream is being lived. I love it. I love it. So Martin. Now, uh, a reminder to everybody out there, Martin is a very accomplished full-time artist, and you do commissions, shows at restaurants and coffee houses and galleries. I mean, you're doing it all, right? I say yes to lots of things, especially things I haven't done before. And I think that's been serving me really well for the last couple of years. So, Martin, if we want you to commission a piece for us or fill our gallery or other space with uh, all of your wonderful art or new art that you're creating. How do we get in touch with you? What's the best way? I have a website. <laughs> <laughs> I have social media. Uh, yeah, no, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and both of those are just my name. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-M-U-N-R-O-E. Website is martinmonroeart.com. And yeah, just the regular channels, you know, email, like there's contacts throughout all those. And I'm open to, like I said, like pretty much to discussing anything and trying anything at least once, you know, and and, and again, just looking at, at things I haven't done as a challenge and as like a potential learning experience versus being like, no, nah, I don't fucking do that. <laughs> well, Martin, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. And listen, as a, also a former mess you know, out there raising hell and, and causing myself lots of trouble. Former. Former. Uh, you've helped me out a lot over the past six or so years. And I don't need to go into all the details, but you know, I know, we know. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for being a great friend. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And I just want, want everyone to know that that is a two-way street. 
and that the feeling is mutual. So thank you, Keith. There you go. That's it for this week. We are going to end the show with a brand new, unreleased track from Curse the Knife. Curse the Knife is an alternative shoegaze band on New Morality Zine. They have a new album called There's a Place I Can Rest that comes out September 8th. And this is a brand new song. It's called Big Ol' House. And I dig it. I dig it. Check it out. I'm also going to add it to the New Scene 2023 Spotify playlist. This single comes out everywhere Wednesday. So check it out on your streaming service of choice once it comes out. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening. And until next time. seems to be going okay and I'm stable.